0: All right, welcome back to Formate Arbitration, and today's the day. I told y'all I was going to have the man on, the man is on. (laughs) I got Mr. Brian Renfro on today, and uh, we're going to take a long time answering y'all's questions. Uh, We didn't cherry pick any questions. Any question y'all asked, I wrote down, and he's going to be asked every single one of them. So we're going to be here a while. I'm not going to do a whole lot of talking beforehand. I want to say a thank you to Mr. Cole Billups because if it wasn't for Cole Billups, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd have Mr. Renfro rubber banded to my microphone again, but Cole Billups, brother, I appreciate you more than you know. He stayed up with me about uh, three hours the other night, (laughs) trying to get this thing situated so I can have Brian Renfro on here today. And so if it works out great, it's due to Mr. Billups. If I fuck this up, it's due to me, so hang in there with me. Um Next week, JB's going to be on, and he's going to talk about a hot topic we're dealing with right now, and that's management doing craft work, especially 204Bs. What's their status when they're doing our work? When can they do our work? Uh, that's a lot going on on social media right now about that. JB is an expert with that stuff, and so he's going to come on next Sunday, and he's going to talk about management doing craft work so that's going to be a very good episode uh, a needed episode because we need all the time we can get uh, with these new memos out and so that's going to be all the talking i do uh do want to tell y'all to make sure that you get on discord if you go on to Uh all those links will be on there jeremy mccall's done a great job with that site Get on Discord. Uh, Mr. Renfro surprised him last night and got on there, answered questions. I think it was about an hour and a half. Uh, He answered questions on Discord, said he'll pop in there every once in a while and answer questions. So that was kind of a treat for all of them last night. What was funny was he gets on there and he says, Hey, hey, it's me, Brian Renfro. Nobody would say anything. And I said, "I I don't know if they think it's really you. So some guy finally just says, send us a picture of you to see, to see if it's you. So Brian had to send a picture of himself so that they would uh, know that it was in fact him. So he got on there last night. Y'all get on Discord and uh and check that out. That's a that's a different group of people over there, man. They're up all hours of the night talking pretty good conversations. You got uh, Lindsay on Facebook, she's doing a fantastic job with that. So get on there, talk with her. She does a lot of interaction stuff with that. She also does Twitter. Uh, She does Instagram. And I'm fixing to have a Reddit page. I don't even know what that is. But a gentleman called me the other day and said, hey, do you mind if I do a from 8 Arbitration Reddit page? I said, have at it, my man. So uh, that's going to be a couple of weeks. He's going to have that up and running. So all of that, get that out of the way, and let's get right to it. Uh, Executive Vice President... Mr. Brian Renfro is on, and I hope that when I ask if you're on with us, Brian, you're going to answer me back. Are you? I'm on? here, man. Thank I'm you. I'm here, man. Boy,
1: <laughs> I, uh, look, I, I really appreciate the invitation and happy to uh, have the opportunity to talk with you and probably most importantly, answer, answer uh, all these questions that folks have sent in. I know we got some good
0: ones. We got a bunch of them. Now, uh, just to let y'all know, Brian and I have not gone over these questions and answers. He, I have no idea what he's going to say. I did send him some questions beforehand because what y'all did when y'all sent questions in, I told him I'm going to ask all of them. But some of them are kind of sensitive, talking about uh, arbitration, national arbitration, interest arbitration, all those things. I wanted to make sure, look, I don't want to put you in a bad spot. And so I sent him some questions, make sure that those are things that he can answer on here. Because, you know, he may say, I, you know, I can't get into that. So anyway, he said, hey, ask what you want to ask. That's exactly what we're going to do. So, Mr. Renfro, you ready? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. All right. I want to first talk about your podcast. I know that you started a podcast uh, a few weeks back. If Corey Walton was to go listen to your podcast right now, what would he hear? And what is he going to hear in the future as far as your podcast is concerned?
1: Yeah, so we uh, started the podcast. It's called the Letter Carriers First Podcast
0: from the Renfro-Barner team, which
1: is my slate of 28 candidates for national office. And the idea of starting this podcast was, was a little kind of twofold. Number one, we just wanted to give people, you know, an extra avenue to hear from and get to know a little bit about the – uh the folks that will be on the ballot in the election that's currently going on, and also, you know, hopefully educate a little bit about what the different officers of NALC do. I think most people have a a general idea of what they do, but we wanted to get in depth a little bit and some specifics about their responsibilities. And then I also, on each episode, try to talk about, as it relates to their responsibilities, what our vision is if the twenty eight of us are all elected to serve in those positions going forward. So for example, when we had Jim Yates on, I believe that was episode number three. Um Jim, beyond just being the director of life insurance, he does a lot of stuff for us in collective bargaining. He does calculations and projections on all the different scenarios that you may consider or proposals that may either officially or unofficially go across the table and so we talked a lot about that and that kind of led into a conversation about what we'll look to achieve and collect bargaining next spring. So um, I think we now have, we had episode number seven went out today. It is with the three candidates for trustee. We've got two more episodes. It'll be out in the next couple of days. One is with the candidate for NBA in region one, Keisha Lewis. And the other is for the uh, is with the candidate for NBA in region nine, Eddie Davidson. So on those two, we get into things that are a little more specific about the NBA office and, you know, what they do with the grievance arbitration procedure from step B on up as well as the training and all those kinds of things that they do with folks at the branch level. So um, we're excited to continue. We've got a few more episodes that uh, that we're going to do. But that was really what it was about is giving people an opportunity to to hear from and learn about, you know, the folks that are running for office and, and at the same time educate a little bit on uh, – the responsibilities of each of those jobs and how that relates to what letter do every day.
0: All right. Now, uh, before we get into these questions, uh, I've told Mr. Renfro and i told Mr. Care, and anybody comes on, you know, this is a politics free podcast. However, some of these questions that y'all asked him, I'm not going to handcuff him and not let him get in. If it leads him there, <laughs> he's going to go there. And so if you asked a question on any of those, I had Facebook, I had Twitter, I had uh my private message, my email, my phone number, any question that was asked, he's fixing to be asked this question. And so I'm not going to handcuff him by saying, hey, you can't talk politics, yet he can't answer this question truthfully and fully. And so if it leads him there, it just leads him there. So y'all asked a question, I'm going to ask it to him. And he's going to answer it. So without further ado, my man, let's get into it. Cause I got about 10 pages of questions for you. Well,
1: let's start at the top of page one. Let's I'm
0: ready. Let's do it. Now, this first one, I didn't write any of these questions. None of these questions are mine. Okay. So, but this first one is, is ironic because when these memos came out, 1982, 83, and 84 with a new T-Rap process, baby, I threw rocks at these things. I was all over, World. and uh, I was not happy because, to me, as an older carrier, I've been doing it 29 years now, Brian. I don't want nobody watching me do shit, you know, because I, I hate the scanner thing about people watching me being allowed to watch me. When the memos came out, I said, watch and see management bastardize these, take these things at our level now, down here on the ground, ground level. Watch them take these things and absolutely – Create mayhem, and that's what we've seen uh, with uh, district managers sending out emails saying that these are new standards for us. This one-minute package delivery and stuff like that. I think that a lot of these things, as far as the one-hour office time, I think a lot of this stuff is due to management taking advantage of these memos. And so, I'll give you an opportunity to address that. I'm going to ask this question. It's very, it's rather lengthy. But you can address uh-huh. that as well as what I the issue I just raised. Okay, sounds and, good. And here's the question: Does the NELC at the national level plan to provide an additional MOU or contractual clarification, which could be agreed upon with the USPS, similar to M sixteen sixty four and M seventeen sixty nine? Now, for those who don't know, that's the DoS kind of the DoS pet memos talking about. Uh, we have no street standard, can't be used as sole determinant for discipline. That's what those memos are talking about. Regarding the anomalies section on page 11 of the M-1983 T-RAP process, this section states specific events with corresponding times that are automatically flagged within the Digital Street Review, DSR, Management is now exploiting and attempting to apply these specific times as agreed-upon standards in all aspects seemingly nationwide. Management's route adjustment team counterparts in some areas are automatically and unilaterally deducting these times during the T-RAP process. In addition, supervisors and managers are citing these alleged specific times on the workroom floor to letter carriers as agreed-upon standards that must be followed, as well as citing these standards and letters of discipline for failure to follow instructions or for unsatisfactory performance. Management is even using these times to argue against certain Article 8 violations that may arise. This is most definitely causing a hostile workplace in certain areas, where an additional MOU could help clarify and decrease such situations. Thank you for your time, and I appreciate your response. There's your question.
1: Yeah, so let me take kind of in two parts. Let's first talk about, you know, there were references to the Doa settlement and the the other one that came out of Indiana, the office efficiency tool, where really just all about projections in the office versus what the carrier's estimate is. And those settlements address that conflict as it relates to office time. So the question about street time, and, you know, because this has come up a lot since the GPS came into play back in, what, well, I guess 2015, 2016, somewhere in that neighborhood, is would there be a, you know, an agreement that addressed the use of, of quote-unquote, street standards? Um, so the answer, in short, is first, those two agreements I talked about the, that you mentioned, the DOAS and the office efficiency factor settlements, were grievance settlements, and both of those talk about that there is no street standard. There has not been an agreement that addresses street in the way those address office simply because we have not had a grievance rise to the interpretive level to resolve. Both of those agreements were grievances out in the field that we identified as interpretive level cases. In the event there was a case or there is a case that comes in the future that presents an interpretive issue as it relates to the street time, then you know we certainly would take that on and we would seek through arbitration or, or even settlement like we did with those two you know to to reach an agreement that provided the language that we needed to protect but the reality is we've had a lot of success and you know if management is issue and discipline just solely based on what they see in, in the gps data you know we've had a lot of success out in the field in defending that and we've not had that rise to the level of an interpretive case at headquarters but you know, in the event that happens in the future, then definitely we would take that issue on and, and address it the same way, more than likely, um, the same way we address the office stuff. As far as the tie wrap, the route adjustment, um, any time we have done these processes, and and I've done this, is the third one I've done from headquarters, um, the second one that I've basically negotiated myself um there is always going to be a certain amount of people management out in the field, be that at the district level, at the local level, that will take any type of agreement that you do and try to bastardize it and use it in ways like you described in the, or the, whoever asked the question described in the question. That always happens. Um, there will also always be those that are, you know, even in a joint environment, and you mentioned those that are unilaterally deducting time, you will have people out there doing that kind of stuff. That's why these agreements always include an issue resolution process, and any place where that's going on, elevate that through that process, and I feel very confident that we can get that resolved. Um, let me address the parameters and, and what's included in the agreement, just so everyone understands. This is a, a pretty common question. In fact, it's a question I got uh, just yesterday. I was with our Brothers and sisters in our Wisconsin State Association had a training and someone asked a very similar question. I think first, the use of this technology in a route adjustment process, what that is and what it, the reason we use it. So in past processes, what we've had is we would have a team review office and street time. There were certain things that we could review to ensure that the data is, is, you know, accurate and it's not It doesn't have mistakes and time deducted and stuff like that. There were some reports we could review. But after that, the team was faced with one of two options. They would see a time, be it office or street time, and they could agree to leave that time in or they could agree to take that time out. What this technology allows the team to do and the visibility they now have is to use every single day in where there is an error in the time. Um, Typically, this happens on street time you know, where a carrier went and did something on another route and it was not clocked properly or or something like that. The team can see that. They can fix that. And then in the test environments we did before the agreement, once you did that, both parties are sitting there. They know that the information is accurate. It's what the carrier actually did. The evaluation of the route is very simple. It's what it is. As far as those parameters, the reason we included those is we found through testing that there were some instances, though this program does a really good job overall of recording the things that happen on the street, be it delivery or allied time, such as relay time, um, parcel delivery, that sort of stuff, there were some instances where it did not accurately record those. For example, you've got loading time as one of the parameters, and it's got a pretty high number. We saw in some places that you would have loading time, which begins when you clock to the street, and in this program, it ends when you leave the parking lot across what they've got identified as a geofence around the post office. So in some cases, a carrier would go out, they would load, and they would begin delivery without leaving that geofence. In that instance, you've then got time that should be delivery time that's being recorded as load time. So those parameters are not about adding or reducing time on the route. They are simply about identifying where you may have a possible data mistake. The team can review that, and that's part of what the team does with the carrier during the live week when they have those conversations. If they see one, they they think it's out of the ordinary. They don't know why it's that way. They can ask the carrier about it. The carrier will tell them what happened, and they can make whatever whatever the appropriate adjustment is. So, you know, anytime, again, we have an agreement like this, you know, there will be managers out in the field that will – you know, take things and, and do things that are, you know, in some cases easy to defend but still frustrating, you know, put out messaging like you talked about that came from that district manager. That happens with every agreement we ever do. And if we did not um, engage and, and work toward agreements like this for that reason, we would never have any agreement at all. So, <laughs> you know, you do the best you can. Um, we're, we think the process will work. I mean, that will play out over the next year and a half or so. Um and then, you know, anyone that has something like that going on out in the field, you know, if you see some sort of communication or it comes from a district, get that to your national business agent who can either address it there at the area level and and you know many, many times, probably almost on a daily basis, something like that comes up to me at headquarters and usually working with the postal service over at headquarters, you know, where, you know, they can't tell me that that uh that, that was their intention because I'm you know, we negotiated the thing together. We're usually able to get stuff like that clarified out in the field.
0: All right, I didn't. I didn't write that question just just for you. Okay, that actually because <laughs> <wouldn't. that> <laughs> there's two more that that you're going to say. Damn it, Corey! But uh, here's the second one. Discuss why Mister Enfro decided to enter T-RAP. What are the advantages over the previous process? What are some of the potential pitfalls?
1: Yeah, so when they say previous process, I'm assuming they're talking about the 2014 um, agreement with cd which structurally this agreement is pretty similar. Um, it's not a whole lot different. We use pretty much the same, well, well the exact same office evaluation <clears throat> tool, and then we use a very similar street evaluation period. Um, the obvious difference here and the change is the use of the digital street review, the, the technology. That was not, it was in development back in 2014, 2015, but, you know, wasn't in a place where you could get to a point of using it for route adjustment purposes. So when we uh, ratified our contract last March, we've got a, a subcommittee that works on route adjustment with the folks of the postal service. And over the last few years, we've attempted every year to reach agreement on a joint route adjustment process. We just simply believe that's better than them doing it unilaterally. Um, we think it's always better if we have not just a seat at the table, but, you know, a 50 percent, um, you know, participation in, in, in the decision-making process and every step of the way when it comes to evaluating and adjusting a route. So when we started last spring, um, we sent a couple of teams. We took two folks for us that were very experienced. We took two from the Postal Service that, believe it or not, were also experienced in route adjustments and gave them a handful of zones to do, gave them a general outline of the time frame we wanted them to use and, you know, how to evaluate and that kind of thing. But we also wanted them to explore the technology that was out there. One of the things that we've had a long-term interest in, back going all the way back to when I was director of city delivery and they were developing some of the GPS stuff that's out there now, we had an interest in, for out adjustment purposes, using that GPS information to replace the way... The postal service has always done thirty nine ninety nines for a couple of reasons. Reason number one: nobody likes that process. Carriers don't like managers being out there with them with that stupid little handheld computer,
0: and managers
1: don't particularly enjoy it either, for the most part. Plus, you're very, you know, slave to when the manager is available to go out and conduct a thirty nine ninety nine and. You know, a lot of folks listening, I'm sure, have participated in the joint processes in the past, and if you've participated in that as a, a route adjustment team member, you know that the number one cause in delaying being able to get adjustments completed is not having the 39.99s. So you go send people out; a bunch of managers have to go do ten in one day, and it may be a day where the mail is light, or there's some problem that you know makes it not representative of the route. So we wanted to use the technology as a way to develop that something like a 3999 that we use in the adjustment phase of the process, which is when we move, you know, this block of Street A over to from Route One to Route Two, that is what determines the the time value for what we take off the Route One and we add on to Route Two. So that was one benefit. And the other, you know, we started with the Postal Service had a very different view of using technology. Their initial view was much more along the lines of looking at engineered type studies and projections and how long it would take to go from point A to point B on a map and you know things like that and which you know our goal has always been to continue to use the demonstrated performance what the letter carrier the regular carrier on the route actually did and eventually they came around you know through some testing to our way of thinking and the best way I think for everyone to look at this information is that it is only that it's just more information for the route adjustment team to have to ensure that those average times they have at the end of that period are reflective of what that carrier actually did on the route. And, you know, we did a pretty significant amount of testing with this and worked on this program for a year, uh, making adjustments to it every two weeks to get it to a point where we could use it for those route adjustment purposes. And, We were pretty happy with the way the test came out because the bottom line at the end of the the testing period was for the carrier. They didn't have anyone go out and ride with them. All they had to do was talk to this team a couple times. They had their consultation. And for the team members that are sitting there and have to agree on a time for each route, once you go through this and there's nothing left to hide, everyone knows exactly what happened on every single day on every route. You've got an average time of what the carrier actually did. There's no argument to be made there that the evaluated time ends up being exactly what that average time is. So, um, I'm sure that we will be able to improve it, the program even more in the future. I mean, we anticipate doing that even with the, you know, now that we generate the 39.99 out of the program um, and the team gets to pick a day that's representative of the route we would like to long-term get to a point where we're not just looking at one day, even for that, for just the 99, maybe we look at the average over the course of a week of how long that sector segment took. So there's still some improvements to be made. And um, I think this is referenced in the guideline document about, you know, that we'll continue to evaluate things like those parameters and and stuff like that. So it's kind of an active ongoing um, process of, improving the program but just based on the testing that we've done the feedback we got from carriers you know we expect that this will be a successful process as we move forward now the one thing that is a challenge no doubt is the training and the fact that we've trained hundreds of people now but still we've got a program out there that people are having to learn how to use i mean there are six people on the face of the earth that ever used this thing so you know, there's, there's a little bit of a learning curve there, and that'll continue over the next couple of months. I think as people become familiar with it, um, once the teams are accustomed to using the program, they'll get a little more proficient there. And I think the experience for the carrier, as far as the route adjustment itself, will be one that's less invasive than it's ever been. Nobody's going to be out there riding with you, just simply talking to the team about your route and, you know, through the consultation as well as that live week. So... We'll continue to monitor it and, uh, and be sure that, you know, we get all the tools that we need to our team members that are out there and also be sure that our folks at the local level are educated on what the process is so that they can get all the information that's needed out to the carriers, you know, when they're being evaluated. So we're excited about it, and uh, we think it'll turn out to be a, a positive result for us in, in adjusted rounds.
0: All right. <clears throat> Now, I like the way this guy starts out this question here because he's ready to get in somebody's ass right off the jump. He says, why in the world would the NELC allow management to use scanner data to adjust routes? The GPS can't even get sampling requests in the right spot or says I'm 1,249 feet away when delivering a package that is, in fact, at the right address.
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, While the data still comes from the the MDD, it is raw data from the MDD, and it doesn't involve this kind of a a third-party program which sends those, what he talks about with, you know, the reminders about parcels and that stuff.
0: So as I mentioned,
1: we did significant testing. Um, The GPS stuff is as accurate as it is coming from your cell phone is the best way to put it. And through all the testing we've done, we did not find a single place where we had any significant issue with inaccuracy of the GPS data. That was one of the, the big reasons for, you know, doing the testing, continuing to update the program. It is based on pretty much the same technology like Google Maps or Waze uses. So, um, it's that file is continually updated. And, and certainly if we were to become aware of an issue like that out there, that that's something that we would jump all over and address. But um, through the testing we did, we did not find any any problem whatsoever with the accuracy of the information that's recorded.
0: All right. Now here's one. It's got three questions in one, and so it all says, right. "If T-RAP is supposed to be so helpful, as our VP <laughs> explains it, why is management allowed to take away from a carrier during their live week? How is that accurate?" And it is ungrievable because it has to do only with t I am grieving the carrier not working his full eight hours on his route, but why is it allowed for management to take from him during his live week?
1: Yeah, so there's no specific agreement that, that prohibits that. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize that that live week, the purpose of that live week is for... The team to look every day at the route and communicate with the carrier. It's like an education thing back and forth. You also have these other seven random weeks that are not really random. We gave the weeks, but they're selected. that represents a week out of the past, you know, seven months, excluding the summer and December, going backwards, which that just happens, you know, over an evaluation period. There's going to be times when, you know, pieces of routes are given to other carriers and, you know, carriers finish their route and go do – the team can see all that stuff now, and you know they can factor that in. And I would just encourage anyone that's got that going on. If you believe there's, you know, potentially during that live week this happens, and it could be a detriment to tell the team about it. And they've got again that full visibility into what's happening, and they can deal with
0: that. All right. Now here's what I'm talking about, Brian. Answer it however you want to answer. It's, it. I said it's. I'm going to ask you what was asked. And and it's going to be, maybe lead you in some political. I don't care if they're going to ask you a question. Whatever you got to do to answer it, okay? Uh, gotcha. It says, "What can we expect coming into negotiations for the next upcoming contract in regards with today's world and inflation, and pay in regards to other big time unions in comparison."
1: Well, it's a good question. It's a really good question. Um, let's start with what we have been doing you know for a couple of years now um you know whenever we you negotiate a contract as soon as it's done you immediately start preparing for the next one and you start preparing for interest arbitration even um but the first thing you do is you have to evaluate the factors that are out there that create the environment for bargaining and whoever asked that question mentioned a couple of them um some of those are are very direct um of course, what the other postal unions do has an impact. Um, what the Postal Service's financial condition has a huge impact. And thankfully, we were able to, in April, get signed into law, the Postal Reform Act of of 2021, which improves that financial condition. So that'll be nice to go into collective bargaining and, you know, see some numbers on the board that are not read um, related to the pre-funding that's now been repealed. There is what's happening in the larger economic world around us I mean we all know that we live in a country that has seen pretty rapid wage increases in, all across the board over the last roughly 18 months or so and you know while that's created some short-term problems for us with staffing and, and the ability to hire which which we'll get into a little bit more I'm sure at some point here today um, long term that's a positive thing as wages grow up you know go up around us, then that's a good thing for us. Um, There is the comparability standard in the law that says postal, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but postal employees should be paid similarly to what, you know, employees do the same kind of work in the private sector are paid. Those long-term comparisons have been UPS is, is obviously the easiest comparison there, but now we've got the Amazons of the world out there that are, are delivering. So, you know, and that's we've invested in, you know, joining together with other unions to to really get behind the effort to organize those uh, delivery drivers long-term. So when you assess all those things, and then, of course, you assess exactly where where you are right now, um, and by uh, you, I mean us in our craft, and we've got staffing challenges, we've got hiring challenges, we've got a – we're in a place where – the economic world around us has put us in a position that the non-career, the group of non-career employees and the structure that we currently have for those non-career employees, it does not serve our craft anymore. So I would say that's the first thing when you look at negotiations next year is moving closer toward an all-career workforce, which has been a long-time goal of ours we think number 1 it's the right thing to do that letter carriers you know our value to the postal service and then our job is you know the most crucial job in the postal service it's harder than the jobs in some of the other uh, the other crafts and just the fact that they the postal service has to have the ability to hire people you know gives us a pretty compelling case to make to move much more towards an all career workforce so that'll be a a big issue. The structure of the workforce is always a big issue, but I think particularly with what we've experienced over the last year and a half makes that um, something that'll definitely be at the forefront of negotiations. <laughs> and then there's the other, you know, the, the, looking at the pay scales. We've got, you know, almost all of our carriers are either in Step O with Table One or in Table Two. So the, the starting pay has to be higher. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. So that's something that we'll you know, focus on a lot and, and the possibility of how we structure the pay table. Um, we had a, a resolution passed a convention to eliminate table two, put everybody back in table one. That's one way to do it. Um, there's also a million other ways to do it. You know, just the way that you, you, you can think of the pay scale as an accordion. So we've got a step P coming in in November. Um, maybe it's just squeezed together where the starting pay is – is higher, and then the waiting periods for the steps get smaller. There's tons of possibilities, and we've you know, already prepared with a lot of different scenarios there that, that we'll take to the table. Um, cost of living adjustments are um, number one is to maintain them. I'm not sure how many of our folks know this, but we are one of the very few unions out there that still have a, a full, robust cost of living adjustment. Um, one thing we would like to make some progress on is, you know, the fact that in table two we've got our cola is prorated based on where you are at, at a step. So in a temporary manner, uh, until you get to step O or soon to be step P, come November, you don't receive the full cola. But everybody does receive the full cola once they get to step P. So that's something we'd like to uh, we'd like to make some progress on. And then there are other things that that maybe we don't think about as much. Um, subcontracting is always a big issue. I think those that have been around for a while will remember back in 2007. Um, I was not at headquarters at the time, but we reached impasse, and it was all about subcontracting. And thankfully, you know, at the uh, once we were preparing for interest arbitration, we're finally we able to reach agreement at that time on uh, some protections that remain, you know, in our CBA today. But, you know, those things are not taken for granted. That's a serious issue that we have to, we have to deal with in every round of, of collective bargaining. So those are, I'd say, the big things. Um, and we have, as I said, been preparing for ever since we ratified in March of 2021 for our last agreement. We've been, you know, hard at work doing that stuff. And, you know, that's really ramped up, as you would imagine, here in the last few weeks and uh his bargaining will start february 23rd of 2023 <clears throat> excuse me that is the day that uh that we will kick off our next round
0: all right now this is if we're in arbitration you'd probably hit me with asked and answered because we've got a couple here if you want to just touch on them briefly i think you've already addressed it sure but are we going to try to get rid of table two on the pay table that was originally awarded in arbitration?
1: Yeah. um, You know, as I said, that's one way to do it. You know, look, if if we could reach agreement to do that, we certainly would. Um, But I I think there's also other ways that, that maybe um, that would accomplish essentially the same goal in the end. Um, but might be a little easier for us to be in a place with the postal service to find agreement on. And, and there are dozens, if not hundreds of possibilities. But yeah, I, I think we covered that already.
0: All right. Here's another one. Who, mm-hmm. why, and what was the thinking behind the NELC in agreeing with route adjustments being done based solely on our scanners?
1: Yeah, we, we talked about that too. Um, it, First off, it's not based solely on the scanners. Um, A lot of it is uh, the activities of what's recorded out on the street. But you you still, your begin tour, move to street, move back to office in tour. That still comes from your clock rings, just like it always has. So you know nothing has been removed that we had in previous processes. We still are using those clock rings, and the team sees those. This is just additional information.
0: All right, here's one that's going to challenge you a little bit. All right. I want to know why the NALC dropped the ball on compensation for our essential worker risks during the first year or two of COVID-19. We risked our lives and our families' lives on a worldwide unknown disease. Why did the NALC agree that it didn't matter for us to receive any kind of compensation? Also, what is the plan being fought for in the plan for the next four years of our pay Versus the inflation in this country, many large companies start their employees a better pay for far less work ethic, as delivering mail requires. And you've already answered that. So, on that first one, talking about the, uh, I guess the 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 when she talks about the essential worker risk right. during the first year or two of COVID,
1: yeah. hazard pay for lack of it. That's kind of the common term. Um, well, first I want to be very very clear. Um, NALC did not agree to not pay postal employees specifically letter carriers hazard pay that is flatly untrue in fact much to the contrary we lobbied very hard um along with the other unions the larger labor movement for hazard pay um that did not happen in the end there you know there were pieces of legislation that were proposed that included hazard pay You know, working with our friends in Congress and both parties, which we have both in the House and the Senate, we have really good relationships, you know, bipartisan issues. So, you know, we deal with both sides of the aisle. Um, But ultimately, there just wasn't the votes in the Congress to pass a bill that included an appropriation for hazard pay. So um, it did not happen. I agree 100 percent that it should have happened because what letter carriers did – particularly early on in the pandemic you know when there was just so much undone and pretty much everyone else was at home um, but we're out there every day delivering mail um i 100% agree and and that it is warranted and you know wish it would have happened and we did everything we could possibly do um, from a, a lobbying standpoint a legislative standpoint to make it happen but in the congress it comes down to simply are there enough people to vote for to pass it and you know, in this case, um, the opposition to hazard pay was um, stronger than the support for it. And that's not necessarily the fault of one party or the other. Um, it's really a fiscal question, you know, more than more than anything else in their mind. So, you know, that's something that we, we fought for. Um, if an opportunity arises to, depending on what happens in the elections or, you know, changes in, and you know the makeup of the congress which will happen here in a couple of months and the opportunities there to pass it then we will put everything we've got behind it once again
0: all right this one here you may have touched on a little bit it says the city carriers are the most productive craft employee every second yep. a city carrier's time is accounted for and routes are adjusted that way that being said, I believe the city care craft should be highly rewarded in pay compared to other crafts. In the upcoming contract negotiations, will you negotiate a higher contractual pay increase than what the other crafts are getting? A, 1.1 percent to a 1.4 percent contractual pay increase isn't that much, but we do need to keep the COLA. It's the most important benefit we receive. Thank you, Mr. Renfro.
1: Well, that, uh, that brother or sister there sounds like a good interest arbitration witness. Um, <laughs> I, cause I, I couldn't agree more. Um, that's a case that's made. In fact, we made the case in, uh, in our, you know, we conducted, really finished our interest arbitration hearings back in, in 2020, um, before we were, we were able to reach agreement there kind of at the 11th hour on a tentative agreement. But one of the, the cases that we made, cause the Postal Service has, Traditionally, they come in and, and you know, whatever, whatever other unions have already finished their collective bargaining, you know, whatever they agree to, they view that as a pattern that we should accept that pattern. Now, um, we have not done that, and we put on a pretty compelling case. As the, as the uh, listener that asked the question said, um, we are the most valuable, and we do work hard, and we, we truly believe that, and there's hard evidence of that. Um, that will definitely be a big part of what we do here coming up. So, you know, when you look at the pattern that the Postal Service tries to establish, it's if it's one point, you know, whatever, one point three, one point three, one point three, that the other unions did, and they want us to accept the same thing. And over the last couple of rounds, we have had very similar increases to them in terms of just the general wage increases. But we've also had a couple other things. If you remember, we had the upgrade in the twenty sixteen agreement, which was an additional increase in the twenty nineteen agreement that was just ratified last year. You know, we've got now coming this November a, a general wage increase, but we're also implementing a new step, step P. So everybody that's been at step O for forty six weeks will move up to uh, to step P. But um, yes, in the next round of bargaining, that is something that we will we will absolutely. Uh, put on the table and, and we feel, feel pretty good about those factors I talked about earlier that create that environment that we'll have an opportunity to, uh, make some significant progress. Um, and just one thing quick on the cola, you know, when we look at inflation and, and, you know, what's happened over the last whatever it is year, maybe a little longer than that, you know, our cola clause in the 2019 CBA has resulted in a 10% Raise alone just the cola, and thank goodness you know, amid the the inflation that's because it's a double edged sword, you get more money, but things cost more, right? But you know, that I think illustrates the importance of having that cola clause because there's a whole lot of people out there, even people that are represented by a union that do not. And you know, that would be if we did not have that, we would, you know, our pay would be 10% less than it is right now. So, you know, as I talked about a little bit earlier, we'll definitely work hard to maintain that and uh, hopefully hopefully make some progress on, on what we have with the lower steps and table two as well
0: all right what will the union do better to educate letter carriers what is the plan to support smaller branches that sometimes don't have adequate resources to defend to defend letter carriers
1: so this is a good one and one that i um You know, Corey, as you and I know, being from Region 8, we've got, uh, you know, a good number of those small offices out there. And um, it's something that's really important to me. And and I I have a lot of ideas. I'll share a few here of of what we can do in the future. And we, as a union in general, I think do a really good job of training. You know, each of our 15 regions has a a regional training. Um, They also go around and, you know, do training as needed or requested by the branches. But I think even to supplement that, there are things we can do to make training or or even learning, let's call it, available to any letter carrier out there that is interested. And So one thing that we plan to do, and we're actually working on this right now and hiring someone um, in our IT department just to do this, is to create online opportunities where people can, in their own time, participate in things and learn and you know whether that's about the grievance process or uh, whatever the case may be you could make one about all sorts of different topics or issues so um that's something that, that is in the pipeline um we are excited about putting that together um and what that could grow into is just because it's i think giving someone access to something like that at any point in time is is a benefit and when they got interested in uh You know, they, they, we could direct them there. And, you know, if nothing else, it might give them a foundation for when they attend, you know, one of the actual physical in person, in person trainings. Um, as far as the small branches and places where we, you know, maybe don't have the consistent um, representation from the people that work there, if you don't have a steward that stepped up or whatever the case may be. Um, We have just continued to try to build a network. We have several people around the country that work in our NBA offices. They are called regional grievance assistants um, or RGAs, and that is their job. Their job is to focus on nothing but grievances and helping the branches out there. So if anyone is listening and you have in your office, you don't have a steward or um, you have any question about representation or needs regarding representation, please call your National Business Agent's office, and we will get someone there to represent you. And part of what these RGAs do is not just go and file the grievances and that that kind of thing. We also want them to go there and talk to the carriers and see if there's somebody that is interested in being a steward or being a representative for them, then we will do anything we need to do as far as training or assistance to, you know, put them in the best position to do that. But, you know, and that network, I'm sure, will continue to grow in the future. It's um, something that I think has served us well, but really we're not going to stop until every single post office in the country has got the representation that they need. And, you know, just stepping back, we all get, you know, so involved. I'm sure most of the listeners to this podcast are folks that are grievance handlers, and, you know, we can get so in-depth on certain issues and, but I do think it's important sometimes to step back and realize that while our process isn't perfect and we all know it's got its issues and you know there are things that we constantly work on to improve as we should but overall compared to the rest of the labor movement we have a very very sophisticated and effective grievance arbitration process and you know we will continue to develop that continue to develop the skills of our people that are out there but I mean, just be sure that if there is a need for representation, we thankfully as a union have the resources in terms of the finances as well as the people out there that are capable to provide that representation. So anybody that's got any need of any kind, whether that's you just need a you need to be represented yourself, someone else does, you need training, whatever the case may be, uh, just give your national business agent a call and uh, we will go from there.
0: All right. <clears throat> now, what happens if they call that national business agent and they and they get the silent treatment? Where do they go then?
1: Then they can call me.
0: All right. <laughs> they can call me. Can, Be careful. They can, they can call
1: me at, at any time. And now, as you might imagine, um, you know, I'm on the road a lot and that sort of stuff. But if you call me at any LC headquarters, I promise you either I or someone else there will help you. And we've got we've got a lot of really talented officers and we've got a lot of really talented headquarters letter carrier staff and we will get you what you need. I promise you.
0: Well, I appreciate you saying that cuz we we've got mm-hmm. some problems in some certain places. I know you know that, but no, I do. All, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I was once told. And I don't know how true it is. Uh-oh but that grievance payouts are considered a black budget item and that management isn't really held responsible for how much they pay out in grievances. And that's why some in management will violate Article 8 and not bat an eye at it. And if this is true, I'd like to know why can't we make management account for how much is paid in grievance and make their budget reflect grievance so it's factored into their bonus calculations i.e., the more you spend in grievance money, the less their bonus would be. That was all one sentence.
1: Okay. So um, while I understand the premise of, of the, the question, um, first, please understand that I don't, you know, or NALC as a union, we don't have any control over what the Postal Service, how they structure their budgets or their their bonuses for their managers or any of that kind of stuff um that said yes i don't know it, precisely how they account or don't account for grievance payouts um there have been times that in the collective bargaining process we will dig into that information um because you know it just it can help because if we know there's a problem out there then you know being able to say hey look you wasted tons of money on this is there you know an alternative that we can come up with through the bargaining process um but again you know we we are the sole representative of city letter carriers and we while you know dealing with non-compliance with our collective bargaining agreement is something that we absolutely do when you wade into you know the territory of how they structure their their bonuses and things like that for their managers you know we don't have any control over that Now, my opinion is I agree with you. It would likely be very much a detriment um, to a manager if they knew that, uh, you know, continued grievances over the same violation over and over would negatively affect their bonuses or them in some way financially. It seems that 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 would be effective, but there's just not a whole lot other than, you know, saying it to them, to our counterparts over the Postal Service that we could do to make that happen.
0: All right, and here's one that I've got a lot of. Is the NELC planning to address the language in Article 8.5D that allows management to mandate non-ODL work assignment-only carriers without even considering the use of CCAs first?
1: Yeah, so um, this is a a common thing that that we have in the three rounds of collective bargaining that I've participated in. Um, The first I did was in 2011. And I wasn't as involved in that one. I was, you know, I was involved in, you know, drafting a lot of the proposals and things that were related to work rules. Um, and then I've been the chief spokesperson the last two, so was involved in every bit of that. This is something that we have put on the table in negotiations every time. Um, when you look at the way. The two main places that the Postal Service, their obligation as it relates to mandating people, you know, what they have to do prior to having the ability contractually to mandate non-ODLs or, or in the case of this question, work assignment. You know, Article 8, 5G, which is pretty clear cut. But then we also have the letter carrier paragraph. So the way this played out back a long time ago, like, Corey, when you and I were kids, um, is these things came in to play through a series of mous in the 80s and they they sort of to start with you had the article eight five stuff and then the letter care paragraph came later what we have attempted to do and we will attempt to do again in collective bargaining next year is to really simplify the way that the article eight obligations that they have regarding you know mandating are laid out for example you could take the letter carrier paragraph, merge that with what we have in Article 8, Section 5G, to where you had one rule, regardless of whether the overtime was on assignment or off assignment. Now, obviously, if we're talking about um, off assignment, then work assignment carriers have to be factored in a little bit differently. Um, but that they would have an obligation to not just max out the ODL, but also do the same with PTFs and CCAs where we have run into a sticking point in negotiations is that the letter carrier paragraph only requires ccas and PTFs currently to be worked up until penalty overtime um, the article 85 5 g has no such you know restriction it's it's maximum hours which is 12 and 60. so that'll be something that we take on again um and hopefully You know maybe we're able to find agreement because the the reality is this you know we tell the way we present this thing in the conversation with the postal service folks is in what scenario does it make sense for you to send a cca home and mandate a full-time carrier you know just speaking from their perspective it, it makes no sense it never has made sense so uh, we'll we'll get into that again next year, and as we have in the last couple of rounds, and you know, hopefully, we're uh, in a spot where uh, maybe we can find some agreement to uh, simplify things. There, really good question, though.
0: All right, here's a long one, so stay with it. All me. right. At my station, now this guy he he told his place, so I'm going to say it. At my station in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. There has been nothing even remotely resembling work-life balance for 11 of the past 14 years. Article 8 violations, including 12 and 60 violations, consistent and constant loss of scheduled day off, loss of Sundays and holidays for everyone, regardless of seniority, have contributed to the destruction of the lives of the carriers here. This has continued despite management being issued multiple cease and desist orders time after time, year after year. From what I've seen on these national pages, ours isn't the only station. Over the years, the post office has dropped some insanely large grievance payments from the GATS funds, totaling hundreds of millions each year. They violate cease and desist orders. The monetary remedies are escalated. Management continues to violate. The monetary remedies escalate again. Management violates again, and the violations never stop. Management has long ago made a mockery of the grievance procedure and the contract and clearly do not care about the financial damage they are causing to this organization. Why does the union not fight to add stronger language to the agreement that will actually protect the membership from predatory management, given the severe financial damage to the institution, easily demonstration to to an arbitrator, management's absolute refusal to abide by cease and desist orders, again, easily demonstrated to an arbitrator, and the personal damage to the lives of the membership as a result. Why does the union not negotiate for the right of the carriers to refuse a direction from management without fear of discipline if that direction is in direct violation of a cease and desist order? Monetary grievance payouts mean absolutely nothing to management. Cease and desist orders mean absolutely nothing to management. Escalated monetary remedies mean absolutely nothing to those of us who want our lives back and years of abuse without the union putting a stop to it destroys your membership's confidence and the desire of this union's leaders to protect us.
1: So that is a long question. Mm -hmm. Um, So first, you know, I can't speak to the specifics and and I won't repeat where it is, but I know where it is since you said it. I will certainly discuss that with your National Business Agency and what, see what's going on there. Um, so we have task forces at headquarters, and one of them is called the City Delivery Workplace Improvement Task Force. And there are two ways that we as a union can combat the circumstances that you described. You know, though I understand it's frustrating, um, the grievance procedure still is the main tool we have for doing that um that is fundamental in our collective bargaining agreement that's fundamental in you know the the entire union management circumstance that we have and you know a lot of others have in this country so while it's frustrating when you have violations that continue all over and over and over um never discount the importance of you know, if it's an Article 8 issue that keeps happening of that, of framing that Article 15 issue of noncompliance and requesting, you know, an appropriate remedy for it. We have had success in regional arbitration in some places where um, one of the things that's really grown is the maximum work hour violations, and which to some degree is expected where you have the staffing problems. But I think it's grown. It's even larger than that. And this is something that the contract administration unit headquarters, which for those of you that don't know, is a group of officers and staff that uh, we meet at least weekly, and we discuss a lot of things related to contract administration. Obviously, things like national arbitration and stuff like that, but also issues that are that are going on out in the field. Um, the the whole idea of protection from discipline, um, the right to refuse, you know, when you get to maximum work hours. That's something that we've been discussing. And really have formed, I think, a pretty good strategy that uh, you should see some information here coming pretty soon for those of you out there that are branch leaders, you know, from your national business agents, some direction on how we want to combat that. Um, but the other, back to the task force, one of the topics for us in that task force is where we have repeated compliance issues. we've had a lot of discussion at headquarters, and we have had each of our NBAs have identified a few locations that are pretty severe, um, you know, that sound very much like what you described. And we are in the process of uh, getting into some some meetings at the area regional level to look at each one of those places and just try to, you know, develop the right approach, you know, from somewhere above the district level. Because I think we all know that it's normally, there's exceptions, but for the most part, you know, these things, the, the districts tend to look at them like, well, that's just the way it is at that place, which is the wrong approach. Um, so we're going to continue down that path of also using that avenue to try to address it and find out really what the root cause of it is because that's that's what's important. Sometimes it is poor decision-making by a manager. Sometimes it's driven by staffing difficulty, as I mentioned. We've seen that in more and more locations. Um, but never discount that tool the grievance procedure even though it's frustrating when you have to file the same thing over and over and over that still is the number one tool and I can guarantee you that we will continue to do everything we can not just to you know arm our branches and stewards and representatives out there with everything they need to be successful in that process but we'll also continue with the stuff that we have in our CBA that we work on here at headquarters and you know, with what the, the NBAs do with their counterparts in the area and the district level to do everything we can to intervene when we have situations like that. So hopefully um, through collective bargaining and some of the improvements that we're looking to pursue that we've already talked about here and through those other avenues, we'll be able to make a positive impact in those places that, that really sorely need it. Um, because you're right, there are – Um, I I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a majority of places necessarily, but there are far too many places that are currently experiencing the kind of things that you described in that question.
0: You know, Brian, I always go back to Lake Charles and you're well aware of Lake Charles, the issues they had there. And I probably went down there six or seven times in arbitration for Lake Charles. And I'll never forget arbitrator Roberts. The last time I went down there, he said, there is a figure. (laughs) <laughs> there is a figure mm-hmm. to get them to stop. We just hadn't met it yet, he said. But there is a figure, and uh, uh, and it finally ended when that figure became $1,000 per carry, regardless of Article 8 violation. If it was one carrier not on the list being forced off assignment for 30 minutes, every carrier in the station got $1,000. So it, right off the jump, it was $35,000. And so Arbitrator Roberts always said, there is a figure that will get it to stop. Yeah. We just ain't reached it yet. And uh, he said we'll keep going until we do. And that's what him and arbitrator wallets did. Was they finally it came up to a thousand dollars. So there is a figure out there. We just need to, keep, like you said, we need to keep filing grievances. We'll meet that figure. Somebody's gonna get a hold of somebody's ass uh, from headquarters level on that. But
1: yeah, no, you're exactly right. And that's the case everywhere. That there, there, there's a number there. Yeah. But it just, and I know you talk about this a lot, um, you know, on this podcast, but in order to get there, it, you just have to be diligent and continue to work and continue to file the grievances. And, you know, hopefully we don't, you know, whatever that figure is, it's not as astronomical as maybe it was in Lake Charles, and we're able to get there before we get to that point. But eventually, you know, you you will get there. So as frustrating as as it can be, you know, for stewards, and that's a lot of work, and all that stuff, you know, remaining diligent and staying the course, you know, eventually we'll find it. Well we miss old Larry Roberts?
0: <laughs> hey, that guy. <laughs> hey, <laughs> he, <laughs> he He's a good one. He didn't mind writing checks, did he? <laughs> <laughs>
1: he was a good one for a long
0: time. Uh, absolutely. All right. I asked what he plans to do about uniform costs being so high, not just upping the allowance, but an actual plan to keep the uniform companies from price gouging.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. That's a big problem. Um, so we have been engaged both with the uniform folks. You know, there's a, a, an association of uniform manufacturers, and we, we have relationships with a lot of them. Um, Jim Yates, our Director of Life Insurance, handles the, the uniform issue for us. Um, we have talked with the Postal Service a good bit, too, just to set things up for collective bargaining. But the, the listener asking the questions is absolutely right. Just a normal increase in uniform allowance, or even maybe a larger than traditional increase in uniform allowance, is not going to get us to where we need to be we need to be in a place where the allowance gives us the ability to buy all the things that we need to buy like maybe we had prior to these just crazy price increases we've seen because they have been significant um the other side of that and the listener also referenced this is something that we have worked on through a couple of rounds of bargaining and that is, how can we restructure the program to make it as cost effective as possible, where the end result is that we are able to have a competitive market, which, you know, keeps the cost of uniform items down. Um, and there's different ways to do that. There's, um, you know, we, we've talked to even other unions that have represent employees with companies that have uniform programs about what they do. So. That'll be a big topic. Um, a couple of things we definitely do not want to limit access for the carrier. So if you're a carrier and you bought uniforms a certain way or from a, a you know a, a salesperson or whatever to maintain that, obviously. But you know, rather than just the free for all of companies that once the postal service approves them as an official uniform vendor, um, they are really just uncontrolled in terms of the the way they're able to to ride to raise the cost of uniform items so it's an issue we're definitely aware of we've done a lot of background work on it already for collective bargaining um we've looked historically at uh, what's happened with not just our allowances but with the cost of items over the years and i think we're in a pretty good place and well prepared to uh you know put a good proposal on the table and, and make some progress there so we can Get back to having the ability with our allowance to purchase the things that uh, that we need. Because frankly, right now, you know, unless you're a, a veteran carrier and you've, you know, been fortunate enough, you know, over the years to stockpile different items and things like that, it's if you're a carrier, it's in your second, third, fourth year, it's really difficult with the cost of the items now to be able to to purchase sufficient uh, sufficient uniform. So um that'll be a big issue and it's one that we've been working on in preparation for collective bargaining hopefully we're able to to make some significant progress there i think we've got uh things lined up and you know there's a, a real need to do it you know not just of what our carriers need which is our interest obviously but even for the postal service you know the, they uh, we are the brand of the postal service and our uniforms are a big part of that brand so Uh, We'll engage heavily in that uh, when we get into collective bargaining next year.
0: Is there any discussions on changing the PTF pay structure? I, for one, as a former PTF, and with now about seven in my office, we'd like to see the holidays actually be paid instead of built into the hourly wage. With the annual leave exchange in our contract now, it's a benefit they're missing out on.
1: Yeah, so... um there typically something like that. There would not be discussion outside of collective bargaining because that's just something that both parties know is typically not going to change. You know, between collective bargaining agreements, um, that definitely could be an issue in collective bargaining coming up. One thing I'll point out: um, there has been a change. This was not the question, but I think it's relevant. Um, the Postal Service has modified the PTF pay with the inclusion of the Juneteenth holiday for the first time in 2022. So previously a PTF straight time rate was um, calculated by taking whatever step they were at, you know, A through um, O and soon to be P. And you take the basic annual rate, which is the same for a PTF and a full-time carrier at that step. That's your annual salary for a PTF on straight time previous you would divide that number by 2000 if you divided it by 2080 which is the number of hours you work in a year you'd get a full-time regular straight time rate because we had 10 holidays which is equal to 80 hours ptfs you would divide it by 2000 which gave their straight time rate which was higher than um, full-time carriers at the same step that was to compensate for the fact that they did not get paid for holidays with the inclusion of juneteenth this year That rate is changed. It is now divided by 1992. So their straight time rate has increased some for the inclusion of that 11th holiday. That will be made retroactive back to the beginning of January, Um, but it is in a pipeline um, behind the APWU and um, the rule carriers who have have reached their agreements and they've ratified their agreements and their back pay is being processed. So hopefully that will get taken care of soon. Uh, but it's certainly something we could talk about in, uh, in bargaining. Um, uh, it's not something that I, off the top of my head, remember us having a convention resolution to that, you know, uh, in that regard. But, um, yeah, it's something we could uh, we could definitely, definitely talk about. But the holiday, you know, I, I, and I do think the fact that we have the annual leave option that we negotiated in the last contract may change that dynamic a little bit. But really good question.
0: How about letting CCAs get credit towards retirement for the actual time they've worked?
1: Yeah, so um, this is something that would have to be done legislatively, and there is some activity out there uh, on this issue legislatively. It is there's a bill called the Federal Retirement Fairness Act that is was introduced. Um, it's been introduced in the last couple of Congresses, but in this particular Congress, this bill was introduced uh, by Congressman Derek Kilmer. Um, we have seen some progress with this bill. Um, it is just a second here. The number in the House is H.R. 4268. So Congressman Kilmer is a, a pretty left leaning, uh, not leaning, he is left Democrat. Um, We now have a one of the other original co-sponsors on the bill this year was uh, Congressman Tom Cole from Oklahoma, who is a pretty conservative Republican. So there is some level of bipartisan support for the bill. Um, What the bill would do is it would allow anyone that worked as a temporary or non-career employee for the federal government, including the Postal Service, since 1987 to make deposit— toward their retirement on the time that they spent. That could have been, you know, in our craft, that could have been a casual. It could have been a transitional employee. It also could have been a CCA. If it's someone that maybe is, you know, is a letter carrier now, and at some point they worked as a a PSA for the APW, you know, for the clerk craft or a mail handler assistant or or something in the rule craft in the past, it would also include that time and it would be very similar to what our veterans that when they get out of the service, they get hired by the postal service and they're able to, you know, the common term is, is buy back their time. And basically what that means is you just, you would make the deposit. Normally you would, they calculate if this bill were to pass, they would calculate how much that would be for your amount of time. And you'd have the opportunity to pay that, you know, out of your paycheck. So, um, This bill is likely because this Congress is almost over and there are elections in November and those folks, when it comes election time, they typically don't spend a whole lot of time in Washington DC. They're back home trying to get reelected. Um, not likely this bill sees the light of day in this Congress, but, um, in the next Congress, I would anticipate that we'll get it, we'll get it reintroduced really early and, uh, do everything we can do to, push it and um, you know grow that bipartisan support and hopefully eventually be able to make it become law that would be a, a tremendous benefit particularly for some of our folks that were tees and um, for several years and then became ccas and so they we've got people out there that have five six seven years of that it would be a really big deal for them to have that opportunity so we'll keep using our um, legislative and political structure to uh things like this because now that the postal reform was finally passed thankfully um this is most certainly one of our legislative priorities and it's something that's right there at the top of the list and we'll put a lot of a lot of time and energy and resources behind making it law eventually
0: all right this is a two-part question i'm going to save the second one because the next three are dealing with the same thing clarity on daily hour maximum hours it was explained by my MBAs that CCAs, PTFs, and non-ODL are 11 and a half hours as their service day, as in clocked out in 11 and a half, no matter if they take a lunch or not. This subject is highly contested that it may mean they must be clocked out with 11 and a half hours if no lunch is taken and 12 hours if a lunch is taken, meaning 11 and a half hours of work, which is correct.
1: Right. So the the rule is, here's the easiest, I I think, anyway, the easiest way to think about it. The rule is your start, your begin tour time, your end tour time can be no later than 12 hours in real time after your begin tour time. That is what the end, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what the ILM says. So in effect, if you take a 30-minute lunch, that's 11 and a half work hours. So that's the, the easiest way to, to think of it, I, that I've always used and explained it that way. Now, you know, for ODLs, you know, there's an exception that's, that's in our collective bargaining, an exception to that rule that's in the employee labor relations manual, um, that their maximum hours is 12, um, per day and 60 per week, excluding December. All
0: right. Now these next three are the same all right also many offices are worried about the planned s and dc offices planned do we know more than what was released in august our carriers are very worried and need answers my offices i'm out an outside steward for are scheduled for february and just really want answers and i'm gonna keep going with these next three because they're all dealing with the same thing Mm i want i want to know how long it will take to implement the new station hubs in the cities and suburbs I asked, when will the stations be moved to the large facilities, and is there a schedule by stations for the new vehicles? And this is the last one. All these are about different people, but they're all dealing with the same thing. Mr. Renfro, with offices across the country being consolidated, will the union negotiate a reimbursement of locality tax? The city I currently work in pays no local taxes, however. The city that we will eventually be consolidated to Requires anyone who works in the city to pay locality city taxes. This amounts to anywhere between 30 to $60 a pay period. I guess is what he's saying. Are you willing to request the postal service pay their fair share? Gotcha. All
1: right. So let, let's just, let me get into first what the general concept is of these sorting and delivery centers. Um, and then we'll talk about the specifics. I know there was a question there about um, timelines. So, but, but first, I just want to be sure everyone out there, I know there's, there's an article that someone showed me last weekend, I think it was on, on some website. I don't remember the name of the website, save the post office or something about these, um, SNDCs that was written, I'm told by a retired English professor, which I don't know how a retired English professor would know anything about postal service operations, but maybe that's besides the point. Um, and that article was written based on a leaked PowerPoint that was one of the initial presentations the Postal Service did for the unions and the management associations. Whenever initiatives like this happen, there normally is a, a, an initial meeting where they will tell us, hey, here's what we plan to do. It's just usually a conceptual thing at that point, not really detailed. And then the way things play out is we then engage with them, and those things change significantly from what they initially tell us or show us, or you know that's what this PowerPoint presentation was. So I would caution you about any thing you just see floating around online um, may not be entirely accurate. So let's start with what the concept of Of these sorting and delivery centers is and the reason that the Postal Service has expressed to us that they are doing it. Um, I don't think you'll find anybody that will disagree with this statement. Our processing and delivery network really needs to be modernized and it needs to be improved. Um, We have a processing and delivery network that was built to handle mostly letters and flats. Um, It was then over the course of the the two thousand tens, you know, pretty rapidly degraded by what some of the previous uh, postmaster generals have done with mail processing consolidations. Which you know, one thing most carriers out there are aware of for sure is when after they did those consolidations, you had these longer truck routes. Where sometimes it's APW representing employees, but for a lot of folks, it's highway contract routes that carry mail from the plants to the post offices, to the delivery units. And if you're on the front end of one of those rafts, then you're probably in pretty good shape. You may get your mail at a decent time. If you're on the other end, you know, you are probably got a late starting time, and and who knows if your mail is even there, you know, at that late starting time. So that's caused a lot of problems. And the fact that, that parcels have become such a big part of, of not just our mail volume, but our revenue. I mean, they're, they represent almost half of our postal services revenue now require a change and improvement in that network now the question is then what does that look like so this is their effort Um, they call it modernization to improve the processing and delivery network so starting with the general concept which the general concept is let's take a city like atlanta georgia Atlanta, Georgia, I believe, currently has five mail processing plants in the metro area, and not just in the city, but also in the kind of suburban area around Atlanta. Um, And then, whatever, 100 and something delivery units, probably. What they are planning to do is have two mail processing plants, one in the south, one in the north, that would be much larger and exceed the capacity that they have to process that they currently have in, in those five plants. And then rather than having all those trucks go to all those different offices, they would then, both in the north and the south, have a very large, what they call sorting and delivery center, where a lot of carriers from a lot of different places would be within, I think the criteria they used initially was within 30 minutes of the where the new sorting and delivery center is. Those carriers would report there, and then the improvement this is them speaking, not me but the improvement would be you're processing all their mail, and then you no longer have all these truck routes going around. You take it straight from there to the sorting and delivery center, provides a newer building, better amenities, you know, for the carriers. The mail is there earlier, the mail is there on time, and basically what they would be doing is transferring that transportation that you know, highway contract drivers in a lot of cases are doing, onto to our routes. So if I go to this north place in Atlanta and, you know, where I work, my route, my first stop might be 25 minutes away. Um, me and the other carriers from that office, we're driving from there out to our first stop. So uh, that is a, a positive. Um, It's also a positive that, you know, by doing that, of course, you in the post services said this, we're looking at probably a 10% increase in the number of city routes. One important note is that in their current plans, even though the carriers would move out of these stations and into these big buildings, the retail, the window, that would remain open, the P.O. boxes. So um, they they have not indicated there's any any plan to close any of those. Um, Then... You know, on the, the negative side, potentially negative side, you know, for us is, of course, you could impact someone negatively with their commute. Um, there is, you know, ramifications potentially with Article 12, depending on the circumstances. There's questions that have to be answered about if several installations move into one building, do they retain their identity as separate installations? Do they become one installation? What does the management structure look like? in terms of postmasters and such in some places we'll see where multiple branches are involved. So, you know, we'll have to find out what's the best way to handle that. How do we, uh, do they branches just remain, retain their identity? Is it better to move members from one branch to the other? So there's a lot of questions that have to be answered. So what we have done um, is we've got a list of places. I won't get into the specifics, but that they are planning to do in February. And, We started, we've started, we've not finished all of them, but we will reach out directly to the NBAs, the branch presidents there, gather a ton of information, share exactly what we know that we've been told their plans are, and figure out what's the best case scenario for us. What do we need to then go back to the Postal Service at headquarters and sit down at the table and dealing with this particular sorting and delivery center? What are the issues that we need to iron out? um we so far have only had one of these that has been implemented it's in brooklyn new york and actually hasn't been implemented it's going to be in november uh but in that one we worked through every issue that was that was out there so um that one is going smooth we do have another one in athens georgia that's going to happen this year um and there are city carriers in athens however it doesn't involve moving any city carriers into athens so that one really doesn't affect us, but there will be some come February that will affect us. I'll say this about timelines. Um, they had several of those that are now scheduled for February that they initially wanted to do like now, back in September, October. Um, and those have been pushed back. And I would anticipate it'll be really fluid with the timing of each of these. Um, and I guess lastly, an important thing to just recognize is that the, the each of these new sorting and proposed sorting and delivery centers are very different. They're very different needs. Some, as I said, may involve multiple branches. Some may involve one branch. There's just a lot of, a lot of things. Traffic is a big, you know, variant from one to the other. So as they begin to implement these over the years, I think the one, over the next few years, the one positive thing is, our communication has been really good um, we meet very regularly regularly with them not just on the general concept and the timelines but also digging into the specifics and you know so those of you out there that are um, you know have been told that uh, you're going to be affected by one of these coming up in February um, your branch leaders and and your business agents of course will be involved in conversation with you know some of our folks from headquarters on um, our letter care staff that are gathering this information, and we'll find out exactly what the needs are and uh, and then go back to the Postal Service ahead of time and, you know, be sure that, that we're able to work through those things, at least all the things that we can anticipate being an issue. The second thing um, is, you know, obviously when you move, then you're adding travel time, so route adjustments are going to have to come into play because most routes will become overburdened because you've got this additional travel time. And we've got, you know, we have pretty heavily into discussions on how to deal with that. Um, I'm not really in a place where I want to talk about that publicly because we haven't really agreed. Um, but I can tell you that we're pretty deep in discussions on how we'll deal with that. So, you know, just realize that, like, this is something the Postal Service can do. Um, however, they have to comply with our collective bargaining agreement and even beyond that you know, we're going to identify any possible issue we can and and get it addressed. And so far that communication and process with the couple that we dealt with with them already has gone really well. So, you know, I don't know that it's really a matter of, um, you know, whether NLC supports it or not because, as I said, the postal service can do it. But where we come in and what we're going to do is ensure that, you know, whatever they do, they comply with our CBA, and we achieve the best outcome we can for the carriers that are affected by it.
0: All right. When you say identify potential problems, the last this uh, individual's question, says, uh, "Oh, yeah, the yeah. locality tax," would that be one of those potential problems that you're talking about?
1: Yes. Yes. And this is something that it's actually not not new. We've had um, something so I guess back ten years ago now. The Postal Service started a thing called delivery unit optimization, which they was a little bit like this. You know, they moved carriers but leave the the retail place open. And we even had one, I believe, where we had they sent carriers across state lines where we had a state tax issue. So that's part of what we will find out when we go through that process of talking to the branches and in the regional offices um, is identifying where that's the case. That's one of the things that, that we look at, and, you know, if there's a, you know, a negative impact, I mean, it can go the other way too, you know, but if there's a negative impact on somebody, we will be engaged with them and, you know, try to find uh, try to find a solution there to, to take care of that.
0: All right. Here's the same question, but since somebody wrote it down, I'm going to ask it. With all this post office consolidation, how is it going to affect us all? You answered that, but I'm going to ask All right, here's the next. Why has the leadership of NELC – been so quiet and not spoken out against Louis DeJoy, terrible agenda. Other union leadership has been very vocal. I feel like current leadership has forgotten about the little people down here.
1: Yeah, so um, the question is, the fact that other unions have been very vocal, number one, has zero effect on the NALC. Um, We do not do things because the other unions do it. The other unions do things. Um, that said, our experience with the postmaster general may be different than what the other unions have had. Um, not that we agree on everything, but the postmaster general has been, um, in a lot of ways, very different than his predecessors and in a lot of ways, a lot better than his predecessors. Um, there is skepticism out there from a lot of people, you know, I understand from political reasons and and things like that, and and that's fine. You know, people's entitled to their opinion. But speaking from our experience here, we negotiated a collective bargaining agreement that we um, his predecessor failed to negotiate with us. That's why we were in interest arbitration. Um, we, in 2020, we saw this huge increase in election mail. Uh, we took an idea to him of let's put together a, a joint union and management task force to, you know, come up with processes to be sure that we succeed we did that we had a lot of success we're doing the same thing here again um the 10-year plan that uh, maybe what the the listener that's asking the question is referencing you know it's got some things in it we don't like it's not that we agree with the whole thing and, and going back to the the sdcs it's you know, we'll see how it how it plays out, how it works out. I think the fact that we have the ability to address issues that could come up is a positive. But doing nothing and not improving the network is not the right thing to do. I mean, there has to be improvements and changes to make things better so that the Postal Service can succeed and we're able to handle the, the mix of mail that we have now. Um, in contract negotiations coming up, I... Think that this postmaster general, because of his business background, some of the things that I talked about earlier that are, um, would be in our mutual interest, you know, the ability to, you know, have a job that, that's, that's got compensation that they have the ability to hire. That's going to be a very important thing for them going forward. And, you know, hopefully that plays out and, um, that plays out when we, uh, uh, enter into negotiations and we're able to have some success. So we don't have any, um any there's nothing that this postmaster general has done so far that would warrant you know NALC calling for this postmaster general to be removed that just hasn't happened so far it could happen tomorrow and if it does and we'll certainly take that step so um but you know in reference to the other unions maybe they've had a different experience I, I can't you know we do a lot of things with them together and we're involved in collective bargaining together, but I, I just can't speak to specifically, you know, their, um, their reasoning for doing that.
0: All right. Now this next question, I'm going to take it. They're asking what, what can we do about it? Just kind of, is kind of asked. Uh, you, you see what you think. Continued harassment yep. from management, even after a 1767, multiple grievances for mutual respect, sensitivity training does not help i'm guessing they're asking about what to do cool. with with ongoing management harassment
1: well first off as we talked about earlier um keep using that grievance procedure when we've got somebody that continues to do that we've had a good bit of success and you know I mean, Corey, i know you personally have been involved in probably multiple cases like this where You know, they keep demonstrating that pattern, and we keep grieving. You know, we've had success in getting managers moved out to where they could never supervise letter carriers again. So that's the number one thing is just be diligent about the the grievance procedure. Communicate. If you're the steward, you know, get after it. If you're um, not the steward, be sure you're communicating that to your steward, to your branch, you know, get it to your NBA so they're aware of what's going on because – um, you know, I, I, we talked about the contract compliance earlier, and as how that relates to the task force we have at headquarters. We also have a um, one of the topics that task force deals with is a workplace environment, and you know, being sure that your NBA office is aware of that stuff that's going on. Just beyond seeing the grievances, you know, that, that you may be a location they want to submit to us to to take on using that uh, process that we have too. So. Just be diligent, stay after those grievances. And, you know, if we've got somebody that a manager that just continues to do that. And, uh, where that pattern's been demonstrated, we've had some success in getting folks moved out of there. So, you know, that may ultimately be the outcome, but you know, like the, when Corey was talking about arbitrator Robert saying there's a number, this is kind of a similar thing. We just have to stay on it. All
0: right. Now here's a guide. Now. <laughs> here's a guy throwing rocks now because I I told told you I told you I was throwing rocks man here's a guy he's picked up a handful it says can you sir please take the time to read m39 sections 134.21 and 134.22 and then give me your definitions of the word spy and covert techniques as you understand them and I'm gonna take it he's talking about
1: 1982, 83, 84. Yeah. So, first off, I'm not going to, uh, um, I'm not going to read the sections. I mean, I'm obviously very (laughs) familiar with them, but just for, for those, for the purposes of those that may be listening, these are sections that talk about management out there doing street observations. They shouldn't use covert, you know, techniques to spy on carriers. That's paraphrasing, but, you know, they shouldn't hide in the bushes to watch you. Um, the first thing you need to know, about the these route adjustment tools your supervisors and your managers and station managers post managers they don't have access to this information all right they they have the same access they've had to a program called dms for years now i think back to 2016 so it doesn't change in that regard um it's not like these teams are sitting there watching you what you're doing live they're looking at historical data with the exception of the live week during the live week they're looking at what happened the day before just so that can to facilitate the conversation um with with the carrier so it's not really about spying on you um it's about the team having the information that they need to adjust the route that is their only purpose so you know in the event we have some situation pop up where something that's you know, discovered through the route adjustments, all of a sudden being used for disciplinary purposes in some way, uh, I feel very confident about our ability to get that taken care of and probably not even have to go through the grievance procedure. So um, I wouldn't uh, characterize it as spying or, or covert, you know, watching what you're doing, because for the most part, they're looking at things that happened months ago or weeks ago or, or days ago. So you know, it's not a matter of watching exactly what you're doing. It's just a matter of having the information they need to uh, evaluate your route.
0: All right. So for somebody who who is called in for an I.I. Mm-hmm. And management says your scanner data says that you are sitting somewhere for 45 minutes. And under these new memos, we have the right now to To watch you because that's what they're basing these new route adjustments off of is the scanner data so we have the right to watch you now and so these things don't apply 134 of the m39 or these memos that talk about scanner data can't be the sole determinant for discipline what do we tell those individuals
1: nothing has changed the fact that this i think that's the important message is The fact that these route adjustment agreements exist and establish this process doesn't change anything. So whatever day in May it was that I signed those things, nothing's different in regard to you to carry and what management can see and what they can do or can't do with it. Nothing is different than it was prior to these agreements. Everything is still the same. There's nothing that has changed. Um, They have access to this program, DMS. They've had it for years. Um, You know, whether... I'm sure it's used very differently in some places compared to others. There's probably managers out there that stare at it all day, and there's probably others that probably don't pay much attention to it. Um, but regarding the route adjustment process, it does not change anything. And anyone, you know, if a manager tells you otherwise, I'd just be sure that your steward, your branch officers, um, you know, that they were aware of that, and or your NBA or you know whatever the case may be, just let folks know so that can be addressed because. Um, And the Postal Service at headquarters will 100% agree with me. It does not change anything contractual, anything related to discipline, our protections, all that stuff is exactly the same as it was prior to this agreement. Disagreement's only about evaluating and adjusting routes.
0: How long until a temporary detail becomes permanent without authorization from the area VP? Higher level, but not 204B... Uh vehicle trainer shouldn't that route be available to some to someone else after two years Hmm. well that's an interesting question um <laughs> so higher level not 204b
1: uh that's pretty i mean it happens but it's not too common hmm. um yeah so i mean i'm sure the, the whoever asked the question is aware of you know, what happens when a 204B is, uh, you know, in a detail for four months or longer. Um, and that information is there. I mean, that agreement was made, I presume, back in the day because that person was, you know, working as a manager. So they shouldn't be able to keep their assignments. I'm not sure if someone is doing something that's not necessarily a, a manager Um because this could apply to all kinds of things. I mean, you have folks that are, you know, full-time union officials. You've got people that, um, you know, take leaves of absence for military and, you know, which to some degree they're, you know, covered by the law, you Sarah. So um, that's not something that I've ever, to be honest with you, we've ever discussed in, in uh, negotiations. But um, we will take that back and I'll see. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know that we've had any bargaining resolutions passed in the conventions over the years, you know, relating to not there's a lot about 204B assignments, but um, about, you know, non-managerial details. Um, but we will take that and uh, consider that and see about, you know, what our official bargaining positions that, that, that comes from our conventions, what they've done, and uh, see how that fits with. Um, if it's consistent with that, then we'll we'll explore that in, uh, in collective bargaining.
0: What can be done to get management to look at why we lose so many new people?
1: We are actually, um, there was a long time where, where other than contract negotiations, our last two rounds um, that we had a, you know, hard time getting them to focus on that, believe it or not. Now, to be fair, um, with our low retention, that is something that has been a big topic in the last two rounds of negotiations, I'm sure we'll hear going forward, because when you only retain, you know, 60 50 60% of the people that you hire, then the post service is spending a lot of money to hire and train, and, you know, people that just don't, they don't work here very long. Um, that is one thing that since... Um, The current PMG has been here. There's been a noticeable change. We started, we had a lot of conversation about this in bargaining. And then last year, um, under that city delivery and workplace improvement task force, we did a, started a pilot called the new employee experience that um, really structures the work for people for the first, up to the first year, but especially the first few weeks when they first come out of the academy. um, And it's for PTFs or CCAs or any, any new letter carrier. And it, we just try to give them the best opportunity to learn. There's a, a joint union and management, um, team locally that, that has certain obligations, you know, related to it. And, and that's been very successful. We've seen retention go from like 60% in some places. We've implemented up to 80 and even 90 something percent. And we're in the process now with implementing that, um, in a number of districts. So it is a piece. Um, of the whole staffing problem Uh, hopefully a piece of the solution in the future where if through collective bargaining um, we are able to negotiate you know a pay structure and a workforce structure that you know definitely rewards letter carriers for what we've contributed no question about that but also it gives the postal service the ability everywhere to get enough people to apply for the job and hire them combined with the The possibility of implementing this program nationally i think it uh, could be a a pretty large piece to um, to that staffing fix let's say so it's been pretty refreshing to be honest that uh, you know here over the last couple of years that that they have taken notice of that you know uh, approached us um, and um, laid out just kind of what you know that their ideas and we had our ideas and you know, we're able to negotiate this test. That's uh, that's gone really well for the last year and a half. All
0: right. Can management get some training on actually being a manager and stop having new tool four Bs train other new tool four Bs? Maybe there would be some actual requirements for becoming a tool four B other than breathing or failing up into that position. <laughs>
1: we all have seen that story before, haven't we? Um, yeah, it's funny that that question comes up. Somebody else asked me yesterday, uh, at, uh, wherever I? I was in Wisconsin with our brothers and sisters, they asked a similar story. And, you know, it's not something we can go negotiate, but it just makes sense. Um, so we, and we've had some conversation about this with the folks over at the postal service, just that I, I just, you know, at minimum, there is no training for managers. Like there's no structured thing that they go through. And you go to almost any other large company that they have some structured training program. Um, you know, I, I that would be as if, you know, NELC. we own our own health plan. Hopefully a lot of you listening are, are in the NLC health plan. And it, it, I think we have a thing where we train people for six months to be managers. So, um, I think it could be an improvement, and it's something we'll encourage them to do. I mean, I'm not sure there's anything we can do to make them do it. Now, um, in bargaining, speaking of the, the the 204Bs that fail up or you know, only have find somebody that has a heartbeat and all that stuff, we have had discussions in the past. I mean, we've got some bargaining positions about limiting who could be a, a 204B. We would have the ability to bargain that, and I'm sure that's something that uh, that we'll talk about. Um, the difficult thing is that we can negotiate what our members can do or, or letter carriers can do. So we could negotiate that somebody's got to be a letter carrier for whatever, three years, five years, name the number, before they could be a 204B. Um, we could do that, but then what would they do? They would just go get, you know, somebody, uh, a PSE or a, or a rural carrier fill-in or, you know, some other we can't stop them from being a 204 four B. So that makes it a little bit tricky, but um, we've talked about that last couple of rounds of bargaining. And I would imagine that'll be a, a topic that we get into, but I couldn't agree more about training the managers and hopefully, uh, hopefully they'll be willing to invest in that and can't hurt. That's for sure.
0: You've already touched on this one, but I'll ask it anyway. A question I'd like to know is the following. With contract negotiations beginning soon, what would Mr. Renfro suggest as to the hiring of new employees? Some parts of the country are having a very difficult time hiring and filling openings. What would Mr. Renfro suggest could be negotiated to aid in the hiring and retaining of employees? I think you could probably test on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I did, but, I I mean, it's pretty simple. Um, Higher pay, you know, better benefits, and... You know, in our view, that uh, comes in the form of, of career employment. But but even then, you know, we're, we're seeing in these places where we've done, um, we've gotten, I think we have a little over 100 installations that are on an all-career model now. We've got, just here soon this week, you'll see another agreement to add about 160 more um, to that model. But even in those places already, we're starting to track, you know, now that they're hiring PTFs, are they able to get more PT, people to apply for PTF jobs versus CCAs? In some places, they've made significant progress. In some places, not so much. So, you know, even with just hiring people into PTF, we still think that the the starting pay, you know, has got to come up some. So that'll be a big piece of what we'll we'll have on the table and topic of discussion come February for sure.
0: Why doesn't the NALC offer week-long steward training like the APWU?
1: Hmm. Well, I guess that kind of depends on where you are. Um, so we leave steward training up to our national business agent's office, and, and I, you know, for the most part, those folks do a great job. Um, some of the uh, training that we do um, in, in some of the regions is, is, you know, four or five days long. Um, some do it over multiple years with different levels some breaking into, uh, you know, some breaking into, you know, a, a beginner-type thing and intermediate and advanced. So th- there's a lot of opportunities out there. So I would encourage you to, you know, talk to the folks in your branch or uh, if you're a branch leader and you want the NBA office to do some training just for your branch, they'll do that too, just get in touch with them. Uh, the one thing we do have is – um, that we put on at headquarters is our advanced formal a and beyond class which is a week long um it is focused on um from the formal step a of the grievance procedure up to step b that's kind of the the realm and you know gets it's for people to have some experience and um you know to make them better because that that you know those w informal step a is where grievances start and where most of the you know documentation is put together and we get the case file built like we should you know, But then after Formal A, if that grievance is not resolved, that's really when it comes together in terms of the contentions and all that stuff in the facts and undisputed facts and then our facts and our contentions based on the evidence that's in the file when all that stuff is, is put together before it goes to step B. So that opportunity is there. Now, we haven't had that class um, for a couple of years now because of COVID, but we'll have that going here pretty soon. So you can just maybe keep an eye on the website and um, our social media. Uh, We'll open that up for uh, applications, I would think, here in the pretty near future.
0: Is it possible for the NALC and postal management to sit down quarterly, at the minimum, to go over common issues that are making it to the DRT team's arbitration and jointly work to address those issues? This information then must be disseminated all the way down to every supervisor and steward across the nation. We are having to continue to fight issues that have, have been settled in arbitration years ago because management isn't educating their frontline supervisors. Honesty and integrity must be restored on the front lines.
1: Yep, I would agree. Um, I would tell you at headquarters, we basically do that on a daily basis um, with, with the Postal Service and, uh, and in most of our regional offices, too. Um, so that communication is constant. It never... I mean, it really never stops. Rarely does a day go by where we're not talking to them about exactly what you mentioned and, and our NBAs are doing the same thing with, with their counterparts at the area or, or the district level. Um, I think the one piece there that, that is a, is a really good suggestion, a good idea and something that, that we can discuss with them and is, you know, those places where we have these continuous violations and we see them keep coming up. It's, I think easy sometimes to get lost in, we want to get the grievances resolved and get the remedies for our carriers, and that's very important. It's the most important thing we do. Um, but I could see where the uh, it's in the question, uh, but I think it's a good suggestion. Uh, the communication, you know, structured communication down to that floor level supervisor or maybe the, the station manager um, about that uh, about that issue. Because I can assure you that the postal service probably doesn't do that on their own. I think we all. We all know that. So that's something that, uh, that, that we can talk about and, you know, see if there's a, a willingness to do it. And, um, maybe, you know, I don't know that that's would help everywhere, but I would think in some places, um, that, that that would help and at least let those individuals know that, you know, somebody's going to be watching them if they do this again. That's a really good suggestion. Appreciate that.
0: Here's a good one. I'm super curious if, the national leadership's relationship with postal counterparts is as hostile and unpleasant as most carriers' relationship with frontline management?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, Well, it depends on who you're talking about, I guess. (laughs) Number one, I wouldn't characterize it as hostile, um, not with the folks that we have over there now. Um, There have been managers there in the past where it probably was a little hostile. Um, with the people that we have there now, and, and typically who we deal with is, you know, obviously the, the Postmaster General, the Deputy Postmaster General, and then there are the way it's structured over there. They have Vice Presidents over Labor Relations, which deals directly with us, and then we do, we deal with the delivery operations people quite a bit too. Um, of the current group that's there, we don't have, you know, I certainly wouldn't say hostile. Now we disagree plenty, that's for sure. Um, but I it's very professional um, now. I, I hopefully it remains that way um, for the people that because uh, uh, they change a lot as you would imagine, just like we see it you know in at all levels of the post office they tend to um, change folks around rarely does somebody stay in one place more than a couple of years or so so, you know, I wouldn't say it's hostile right now. Um, I won't name names. There have been times in the past, in the eleven years that I've been here, where you know, I, you probably could call it hostile. <laughs> but right now, it's uh, we, we it's a very professional you know relationship with all the folks, and then we have you know realized there are probably twenty to twenty five people at NLC headquarters that talk to people over at the Postal Service headquarters every day you know, not just obviously the officers, you know, we deal with them, but, but also a lot of our letter care staff, you know, serve on a lot of the different committees and task forces and all that sort of stuff. So overall, um, we have a, a pretty good working relationship with them. Uh, Again, we don't always agree. Um, but it's, it's something where, you know, the lines of communication are open and, and we're for the most part able to, to get issues addressed that are that are raised here because things come up every single day i mean sometimes it's things out in the field sometimes it's a problem that we find that affects you know something nationally and but it's i mean every single day there's just tons of things that we, we communicate with them about and for the most part it's uh it's pretty professional at least with the current group
0: all right here's a unique question Personally, I would love to see when a grievance gets sent to Formal-A that the steward, if they so desire, can attend and play a role in the Formal-A meeting, or if anything, whatever the settlements may be, has to be agreed to by the steward before any settlement happens. I'm pushing any and all my grievances to formal because my supervisor refused to settle at our level, and I don't know why the grievance and steward can't have a say in that decision. I have been burned personally by a decision made by Formal-A, and I would like for something to be implemented that can prevent Formal-A's from killing our cases or settling for something that seems to benefit management more so than the members.
1: Well, first, I would uh, say you may want to have a conversation with your Formal-A rep or, um, (laughs) you know, branch officer or branch president because that sounds like... uh, the root of the issue i'm not sure that that you know negotiating first off something like that would be very difficult to negotiate because our process is and and i understand that management at the lower levels in particular doesn't really do this but our process is designed so that each individual that's playing a role at whatever step in that grievance procedure has full autonomy to settle the grievance so um it, I think that's an issue that it sounds like is, is a problem in, in your location, um, maybe in your branch. And I think that there's probably a better solution to it than a collective bargaining solution where, um, you know, would make a massive change on a national scale of involving, um, you know, a, a steward at more than one step of the process. Now, well, I don't know the details of this individual's look. I don't even. I don't know who it is or where they're from. Um, but there's a lot of places where stewards handle informally and Formal-A. So um, I don't know if that's an option. But I would encourage you to communicate with the folks in your branch and um, you know see if that's something that uh, you know those concerns can be addressed somehow. The because you mentioned the grievance, um, I mean the the grievance should be informed on every single step of the process. There's no doubt about that. Um, that said, um, the union representative, at whatever step, be it Formal A or, or whatever, I mean, it could be Step B or, you know, an advocate that's assigned a case that's been appealed to arbitration, it's very important that those folks are given the autonomy and the authority to work out whatever settlement they think is best um now that they should be communicated to the grievant, um but it's not always necessary that the grievant, let's say approves that settlement um, vast majority of the time we would have that conversation with the grievant, and if they had some strong objection most people would would think about doing something differently and they would certainly consider it but in our process those representatives that you know dedicate their time and have learned to serve in those roles, it's I think it's just very important that they have that ability to know that they can, you know, we trust their expertise and we trust um, what what they have the ability to do. So, uh, I would say that to you that I, I think the issue that that you raise could likely be addressed more on a uh, local. Uh, level within your branch, um, as opposed to potentially a a pretty massive. That would be a pretty large change in our in our process through collective bargaining.
0: You know, Brian, when I first started this podcast seventy five episodes ago, <laughs> or whatever, you know, I started it to educate, to make sure that the case files when they got to arbitration were you know were complete. Everything was all the arguments were made, everything all the contentions were properly made, and the more people started reaching out through whatever means they had. I realized that a lot of places, Brian, the problem isn't so much with management it's with the lack of representation. And that is something that, and about the last 10 episodes, man, I've been on fire as far as the cowardice amongst our ranks and the lack of true representation by our, our, our agent, as Article One would say, and so when I asked you that earlier, and you said, you know, give me a shout if if all the avenues let you down, give me a shout. That's why I'm glad you said that because some people have exhausted every resource to be represented, and and you would be astonished. You probably wouldn't. I imagine you probably get more than I do, but at the people reaching out saying, "Hey, look, this uh, management has done this to me. It's a legitimate grievance." My formal A won't represent me. My branch president's in bed with management. My business agent's too busy to to give me the time of day. I have have nowhere to go. And so uh, that's the reason I was glad that you said that. Hey, look, if all else fails, give me a shout and let me see what I can do about it. Because just like this individual says, we're, we're lacking in some places in this country as far as true union representation, you know, branch four, you know, all about branch four. You're very well of branch four. I've never dealt with anything but strong leadership. We've always had strong leadership here, strong representation. So that's, Mm -hmm. uh, that's alien to me. I don't understand that when people say my formal a refuses to take my grievance forward and, you know, and they'll show me the case file and I'm like, that's a damn good case. Well, my branch president said they're not going to do anything because they, you know, don't want to rock the boat. So, you know, uh, coward, I'm always going to call that out on this show. You know, if if I see cowardice, baby, we're going to call it out and uh, at any level. And so I was glad that you said that, you know, look, if, if everybody's let you down, holler at me. Let me see what we can do about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, we, we get those calls every day and, uh. You know, listen, it's not, not everybody walks away a satisfied customer. You know, there, there are people that call and have legitimate things. And, but at minimum, you know, we will do whatever we can do to, sometimes it's as simple as just getting information and and having an understanding of what took place. Uh, As you said, sometimes it's a, look, man, it's a big country. It's a big country. There's a lot of post offices out there with letter carriers. There's over 200,000 of us out there and, you know, I suppose it's in, in some ways it should be expected that in some of those places that representation may not be up to the standard that, you know, you or I would would expect. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't chase it
0: mm-hmm. until
1: we be sure that, that everybody out there, you know, has the best possible representation. And that's part of the reason that we've, you know, increased the people that we have out there and the NBA offices that are available to do that. And I'm sure that'll... That'll continue in the
0: future. Well, I love the RGA position. You know, it's a relatively new position, uh, but I think that that's a that's one that that we can call on a lot. You know, mine is Jason Ashley. You know, somebody that can go to those smaller stations and say, hey, you know, which I know he's done. You know, here mm-hmm. in Tennessee, I know for a fact he's gotten involved with stations that be like our union representation is piss poor let me go on there and let's see what we're, we're dealing with. And I'll start filing grievances if it's to educate, if it's because you're just not doing your damn job, you know, so I do love the RGA position. I think that that was a, a pretty smart move.
1: Yeah. it's And it's worked out well. I mean, you, we've got good people. I mean, you mentioned, mentioned Jason, he's all right, I guess. <laughs> no, <laughs> Jason does a great job. <laughs> and all the, and look, and we've got all the folks we have around the country that, uh, that do that work. It's, it's, it's turned into, I think the vision for it is pretty much what it's become. Um, but the part of it that, that's going to continue to grow is not just that going to a station and filing grievances. What I talked about earlier is the training aspect and identifying people that are interested and, and capable of being representatives. And, um, I don't know if maybe some combination of training and mentoring those folks along so that. You know, we can eventually, because that's really the solution. You know, we can go in and, and file a grievance where we need to, and we absolutely will do that. We do that every single day all across this country. But, you know, the long term, it's always better to identify somebody that's there on a daily basis and, you know, can monitor things and, and take care of the grievance procedure when that becomes necessary.
0: All right. Here's a good one. Why don't military retirees, 20 years or more, get full leave credit six hours upon making regular? Most of us have our own medical insurance, too. Saved USPS a lot of money. Maybe we should, maybe we should be table one on making regular. At least let us get a free gym membership. Why don't T6s have the option to be on assignment route of the day we're not assigned to five routes in a day, only one. So that's two different questions. It, it was all ran into the same one, though. So looks like the first one is the military retirees. And then the second one is, why don't T-6s have the option to be on assignment route of that day? We're not assigned to five routes in a day, only one.
1: Yeah, so um as far as the, the military retirees, I'm not, I mean, maybe I missed it, Corey. I'm not sure I, I mean, you get credit for your military time in terms of the amount of leave that you earned. You know, so I don't, did I miss something with the, I know there were several other things, but in regards to the leave with what the question was, it
0: says, why don't military retirees 20 years or more get full leave credit upon making regular? They should though. Shouldn't they? I'm almost sure they do.
1: And it's not even, it's not even 20. It could be, it's 15. So I'm not real sure about the, I'll say this, if you believe that yours is based on what I've said is incorrectly calculated, you know, talk to your your branch or or give your NBA a call um, because that might be the, uh, that might be the issue there. Um, and then, what was the second part of the question? Oh, about T sixes and yeah. uh, care technicians. Yeah. So, um, you know, with the work assignment with the care technician, this has been the JCAM for some time, um, and this was an agreement that was made, you know, years ago. That the interpretation of how the work assignment is applied to them is that that they are available for work on any of their five um, assignments that are part of that care technician five routes that are part of that care technician assignment. Um, it would potentially, it would have to be like negotiating an additional overtime list. Um, because there's a lot of care technicians that are out there that are on the work assignment list and then they're on it for that reason, you know, that they want to be available to work overtime on each of those, each of those assignments. Um, so I, I guess what you're asking would be something that would be a work assignment list where the care technician would only be available for overtime on the assignment they were on that day. And uh, I will just generally say that um, it's pretty difficult to negotiate something with regards to Article 8 where you are adding more options and more um, overtime lists. It can be done, but through the negotiation process, something like that is – might end up being more, not as valuable as what it would quote unquote cost in negotiation. Um, so in negotiation, when you propose things and there there's for things that are economic, there's a dollar figure that you calculate and that's you know very easily measurable. But then for some of the work rule stuff, um, you can negotiate a lot of things, but it, through the process, you don't just get things like that without. You know, the, the person you're negotiating with or the other side also getting something and something like adding an overtime list historically now. I'm just speaking from, you know, my experience in doing this is, um, tends to quote cost more than it's, than it's worth. So, uh, the the question of why is there not, why does that not exist? That's probably why we have not specifically brought that up, um, in the, the rounds that I've been involved in. Um, but if, If indeed that was discussed in the past, my guess is that um, that was the reason that that was the reason, you know, that it wasn't that that extra list that you would need to accomplish that wasn't uh, wasn't created.
0: All right, here goes another one. Are there any plans to fight to get rid of the two tiered pay? We've dealt with that quite a bit.
1: Yeah, but Corey, let me just jump in, and I realize this is a little bit nitpicky, but um, and, and I know that the the listener this is not what they were intending, but when it comes to the the like characterization of the, the two tier pay, in some sense, it is that we got there and you know through the DOS award, you know, following the recession in two thousand and nine. Um, but there are other units out there where you have a true two tier where the Employees that are in table, table two or B or whatever it is in their contract, they never reach top pay. Um, and that is not the case with ours. You know, that was one thing that we were able to achieve in that DOS award is maintaining that top pay, which to be quite honest was not easy because one of our other, um, postal unions had, uh, the year before agreed to a contract that had a true two tier um, pay scale so you know where the the folks that were in that second tier they never made it to step o they only made it to step whatever l or something like that so um in that sense it, i understand what you're referring to and i know we've I've covered it in detail what we've already talked about but it really is not a, a true two-tier but yes we uh we want to have one pay scale um that starts pay a good bit higher than what it is and you know, is is a little more. I'm not I won't say exactly like table one, um, though that would be fine if we could get there. But uh, just the things I've talked about with a higher starting pay and you know, hopefully getting to the top step quicker too.
0: All right, you kind of answered this one a little bit. How many grievances were filed in total in 2021? Must be hundreds of thousands, if not more. Is there anything you have planned to combat management's noncompliance in large? So you kind of touched on the second part, but do you have any idea how many grievances are filed in 2021?
1: Um, I do not. Uh, I do know uh, I could find out how many went to step B. Um, Could roughly through the postal services system find out how many went to formal step A. Um, Unless there was a payment involved, then A a grievance at informal step A, unless unless there was a payment where the Postal Service had to include it, then we would just have no way of of knowing, uh, you know, how many there were. Um, But I think what they said is probably right. It's it's probably in the hundreds of thousands, I would think, nationally. But I, I don't know an exact number because there's just no way I would know what those numbers were.
0: All right, here's another you know, one. And,
1: and We tend to, Corey, just quickly, we tend to look at that not so much on the whole, but like by, by issue. So, you know, it can be useful for us to know how many Article 8, you know, daily violation grievances were out there in terms of overtime administration or how many equitability or, or whatever. That tends to be more useful to us than just like the overall number.
0: So if they had an Article 8 task force. A combined mm-hmm. task force. Is that something that they would pull up nationwide yes. or district wide or installation wide?
1: Yeah, yep, which we have had in the past. If, for, if some of those of you have been around a few years, because um, I served on this group back in, what, I guess, 2013, 12, 13, um, where we tested something with overtime equitability, the whole hours and hour concept where all overtime counts toward equitability so our task force we looked exactly into this kind of stuff when i mentioned equitability the number of grievances and um how many places have it quarter after quarter after quarter led us to that test and eventually in the 2017 agreement that became um a permanent you know part of the contract so uh, yeah that's issue wise like a group just like that and we actually did in that article 8 task force that's the kind of group that would pull that information just to help guide the conversation with the Postal Service.
0: All right, kind of answered this one a little bit. Is T E buyback in our future? Will the post office be moving towards getting rid of CCAs and hiring as PTS again? If so, what's your opinion on the matter?
1: <laughs> no, my opinion is very strong. Um, I, I covered the legislation, so it would take yeah. a legislative fix to that. Um, will they move towards hiring PTS? Well, that's our intention is to push them there in contract negotiation. So, you know, and, and I mentioned earlier we've got you know over 100 places, installations. We're going to add, I think, 160 more here in a couple of days, maybe even uh, Monday of this week, depending on when you're listening, uh, where we are hiring PTS. And it's pretty, I, I think, demonstrates the, the difficulty that the staffing problems are placing on the carriers, obviously, from our perspective. But even for the Postal Service, you know, for them to be in a position here a few months before contract negotiations and and have to agree to move to this model is very, very unusual. Uh, But that just demonstrates how dire it is in some of these places and how we need people. And and we'll definitely, in collective bargaining, take that up and, and address it.
0: All right. Is it a nationwide problem with management refusing to meet with stewards for grievances and then paying out said grievances?
1: I don't know that I'd say it's a nationwide problem. I mean, you hear that, you know, that happens. Um, I, but as far as being a a national problem, I'm not, I don't have anything that tells me that that's increased any more than it's been, you know, over, uh, over the last few years, I, I will tell you that, uh, You know, be sure if they do refuse to meet with you, and and Corey, you probably—I'm sure you have covered this in one of your episodes at some point. But Uh you know, you can use that to your advantage in a grievance because they're only getting one side of the story. And when that thing gets up to step B team, you know, they don't—nobody's contradicting our facts. So, um, you know, it's not always a—it's a violation of Article 15. So it's not a good thing. I don't want to—you know—don't make. Don't mistake what I'm saying, that it's a positive thing, but there are instances where we can address that, and uh, it can sometimes, you know, help us, because as they kind of mentioned in the question, you know, help us, we can still move forward with the grievance. It's not going to negatively impact our ability to ultimately achieve what we need to achieve for that grievance.
0: Here's a great one. I think we just talked about it. What's to be done about weak stewards and presidents not upholding the contract?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I, it's a little tricky um, because presidents are elected, you know, officers are elected by the branch. Some stewards are elected by the folks in the station. That differs depending on bylaws from branch to branch. Um, but when you have that that problem, um, you know, first I'd say communicate with them. You know, never and this is easy to do if you don't have a great relationship with someone or you had a bad experience, but it, you still try to communicate with them, but you should feel free to always call your national business agent's office. And um, they, that's why they're there is, is to help our members. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, if, if you feel like you need to call NLC headquarters, feel free to do that too. We're, we're not a union that, uh, you know, I mean, we have structure of course, um, but, that that is not out of bounds for somebody to do that. And no matter, uh, I can promise you, if you reach us at headquarters, we'll do everything we can do to help
0: you. Can we, can we reverse the obey now, grieve later policy?
1: Well, that would be nice. That um, <laughs> we, if, I promise we'd have a lot fewer contract violations. Um, But I'm not uh, sure we would have much success in in negotiating that because that is not just us. That's kind of a a universal thing in, you know, union management relations and, you know, labor relations and that type stuff. So that one would be a pretty heavy lift, though. I'd love to do it.
0: It would be called the kiss-my-ass policy. (laughs)
1: Is <laughs> what we'd have it turned yeah. into. <laughs> well, we, we'd turn it into. We'd have a new. We'd have Article Forty Four. Uh, <laughs> That's it.
0: Uh, all right. Is there anything that can be done regarding the poor quality of management training? In addition, if I know of rule routes in a neighboring town being delivered only once a week, and even then only by a CCA. Is there any way we can expand our city delivery and who should I reach out to regarding this? Hmm.
1: That's interesting. So we, we talked about the management training. I I won't hit on, hit on that again. Um, the answer to the question is, is there a way? I suppose there is, um, city, our jurisdictional disputes with the, the rural carriers and the postal service are very complicated matters. Um, and they're also very difficult to resolve because it basically takes three to agree. You know, it's hard enough to get two to agree. Um, and we've had some success over the years and get some of those resolved. And we've got a lot of them that are still pending just for that reason, that it's just very difficult to get three people to agree. We've had issues that, you know, we take to arbitration and the rule carriers come intervene and vice versa. They take them or maybe even they get a decision, we get a decision. And then the other union agrees it. So it kind of becomes a, a circle. Um, I would say if you've got that going on, we would like to know about that. So let your NBA know that that's happening for a couple of reasons. Um, in some places, that is contributes to our staffing issues where we've got CCAs you know, working in the rural craft. And I don't know if that's the case where this listener's question comes from or not. But there are circumstances where that can have a negative effect. So we'd like to know about it for that reason. And then you know also if it's territory out there that we're just you know only our craft is delivering over a period of time then uh you know we may be able to make a pretty compelling case that that should uh, that should be our territory now that depends on a lot of other factors and you know what's surrounding it and all that kind of stuff but um yeah we i don't there's not a clear path to get there but we would like to know about that and I, it's not impossible i'll say that but um, yeah, if you know of that going on, cause that's pretty unique. I don't know that we've got a, uh, it's not, I mean, we've got some CCAs at work in, you know, rural routes. I mean, that happens. It shouldn't, but it's a violation of Article 7, but it happens. Um, but where you've got it, where it's only us doing it, um, that's pretty unique, but we'd like to know about that. If you would let your, let your NBA know about that and they'll get that information up to us.
0: All right. What are our biggest goals in negotiating our next contract? We know we have more leverage with the increased parcel volume, staffing issues, repeal of prefund mandate, and labor movements across the country. How can we translate this into better wages and working conditions for letter carriers?
1: Well, that's exactly uh, what we will attempt to do. And it's it's and, and I touched on this earlier, but I'll kind of briefly recap it. Um, so, the the use the word leverage. I'm not sure that's the right word. It's really more about the environment. Um and, and I, I'm not gonna go through those factors again. I did that already. But it does give us opportunity um based on the not just the needs of the postal service, because that's important too, is is you know, they come to the table, they need to be able to hire letter carriers. But you know, also the the things that we do that um, to demonstrate the importance of letter carriers to the Postal Service's success, our value, the difficulty of our jobs, the fact that, you know, you mentioned parcels that we're – the job does not get easier when you deliver more parcels, as everyone <laughs> listening knows. So all of those factors, you know, should create the opportunity for us to um, pursue some pretty significant improvements in terms of pay and the structure of the workforce and, and all those things that I talked about earlier.
0: All right, here's one. I'm not sure what we're talking about. I may not have printed this whole thing off. Amazon has also unionized at one location. Those contracts should be up for renegotiation. I don't know. There's not a question. Yeah, right. So
1: No, I, but I'll tell, I mean, I think, I, I, well, I know exactly what you're talking about. So um, we have worked, we've got kind of a coalition here with, um, several different unions, the Teamsters and, you know, several AFL-CIO unions. Um, the Retail and Warehouse Workers Union, who, they're, if you're listening, you were at a convention, their president, um, Stuart Applebaum, spoke there. Um, they are the union that that represents the members in that, that one Amazon warehouse that has been organized. We had a campaign uh, down in Alabama in Bessemer, is a town just outside Birmingham, where we attempted to uh, organize there a close vote the initial vote failed um, but there's was some issues um, with the with the process and things that Amazon did so we're working through that and potentially having a, another election there so we're engaged you know with the, the larger labor community and you know we have an interest in it because those folks that are delivering for Amazon um, are going to be a piece at some point in the future, maybe not big now because we have such a long established, you know, pattern of, of that whole comparability thing with UPS and, and uh, you know, some of the others that have been out there longer. But, you know, unionizing those folks is, is, is one, it's the right thing to do, number one. Uh, but number two, just speaking a little bit selfishly as letter carriers and as NLC, for collective bargaining reasons, you know, having those folks unionized so that they are, able to negotiate you know better pay and benefits and all those things would be a positive for us too so we could invest we've had people that we put out our members working on that stuff and uh, we'll keep working with with our brothers and sisters from the other unions to uh, be sure that we give those folks that uh, work for amazon every opportunity to be educated and, and use the the laws that are currently in place that allows them to, to vote on forming a union to be a good thing for them and a good thing for us.
0: We need a way to stay profitable besides forcing 80% of CCAs to quit, to avoid paying pensions. That's more of a statement, but
1: yeah. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know that we're forcing them to quit, to avoid paying pensions. Now that may I'm not saying there's not a manager someplace that uh, has that view, Um, but it's really not to uh, avoid paying pensions by any means. So, yeah, I I guess that is more of a statement, and and we would, I'll just comment on it briefly, but um, hiring career employees, as I've talked about a couple different times already, um, would go a long way uh, to taking care of some of these issues like you know you, you mentioned there with um, so the high um, of turnover and then we don't retain employees at a very high rate which negatively impacts a lot of different things it impacts us it impacts you know those that are everybody that's out there working because you know they're having to work longer hours that they may not want to it impacts the Postal Service's ability to provide service and um, through collective bargaining, we're going to see what we can do to make some pretty significant improvements there. As we just talked about, I think we've got, got a good opportunity to do so.
0: All right. Where can union members find information on bargaining points for the next contract? I know a couple of things have been mentioned in the Letter Carriers First podcast, but surely that wasn't everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and this is a little tricky. I, on one hand, I, I mean, I, I'm very open you know if you've listened to this entire podcast i've talked i think pretty openly about you know several of the things um i will say that we are driven very much by our official bargaining positions which are resolutions that branches or state associations send to our national convention um and those that the delegates at the convention you know vote in favor of become official bargaining positions so that stuff is out there if you look in the uh the last postal record that was out on the combined issue that covered the conventions, it listed the resolutions from, um, from the last, from the convention we just had in Chicago in 2022. Um, We will have updates and, but, but I'll just, I'll be very honest and, and tell you that we don't negotiate in public. And the reason for that, while I completely, completely understand Every member's um, desire to know what's going on, it does not benefit us to negotiate in public. That can only harm the process. So uh, we will provide updates. I'll tell you, if you have an opportunity to attend your, you know, regional trainings or state trainings or state conventions or, or, you know, branch events that a lot of times – Even after we start the process, there'll be resident officers that attend those and and they will, in that forum, give, you know, some, some, usually give some pretty good updates about what's going on. But, uh, you know, just generally speaking, the things that that we've talked about here, you know, moving toward an all career workforce, higher starting pay. We want to get to the top step quicker. And then, you know, on the work rules side of things, there's a lot of things that are, that are out there um that we'll look into we mentioned the article 8 issue there's other uh other stuff that's you know maybe not as um i guess (laughs) it's as important to some there's things like the way we process dues and stuff like that that'll be on the table um so then some of the stuff we've had going on on a pilot basis we've mentioned the new employee experience we've got a a mentoring pro um pilot test that's out there that that we've sort of merged those two things together and that's gone well so some of those things will be there and then um you know stuff like i mentioned subcontracting is always a big one that'll be on the table um things like you know how much we maintaining where we are in terms of how much we pay for our health benefits And, and so there's a lot of things like that that uh will be up for discussion and we will we will put out as much information as, as we can because we understand, you know, the membership's desire to know, but what I will not do under any circumstances is release information that would somehow compromise uh, what we're able to achieve in collective bargaining. So we'll uh, we'll find that right balance and, um, and get everything that we possibly can out there for people to know. Um, but, again, at the same time, we have to be cautious about, you know, things that get out in public and in the media and that sort of stuff that could only negatively impact what we're able to achieve. So we'll find the right balance there.
0: All right. Can stewards and union members please have access to arbitration awards like all other documents? That said, I'm sure if you request decisions related to whatever issue your station is facing, the NBA would probably send you info. It's a bummer that you go th- you you. Ha- It's a bummer that you got to go through a middleman when there's a database out there, though.
1: Yeah, and I completely understand the question. I think the best way for me to answer this is probably to tell you why it is the way it is. Um, And, Corey, you might even want to comment on this because you'll have a pretty, not unique, but experience, let's say, perspective on it. So, um Regional arbitration awards have a lot of value. Their main value comes in where they, if you are representing letter carriers in the installation where that regional award, where the grievance that resulted in that award originated, clearly it has a lot of value. It also has a lot of value for advocates that are presenting cases, not just for them to use, as cites, as precedent, you know, as a persuasive value for the, for the arbitrator. But they also can use those awards to maybe look at how an arbitrator views a particular issue or um, sometimes can take away certain types of strategy or argument from, from reading awards. The possibility of a steward that is maybe not as experienced being led astray by um, just reading lots of awards and maybe misusing them exists. So that is the main reason that we don't just open it up for anyone and everyone. Um, There is a little bit of a um, privacy concern for some of the, you know, maybe some grievance that are out there that, you know, there are details of maybe incidents that happened in, in some cases that uh, those individuals would not, you know, just won't open for any, you know, anybody to read that didn't need to read that to help them in their role as a representative. So uh, I am not saying we will never do it. It's it's possible, but the access has to be controlled somewhat for those reasons, if that makes any sense. But you are correct. If there is a a need for an award that, um, you know, you need for representation purposes, you can get that from your regional office at any time. Just give them a call and and they'll be happy to, to get you what you need.
0: And I always talk about sites on my podcast. And matter of fact, on my website, I put up the sites that I reference in my episodes and the, and I know that there are varying opinions. I know that a lot of B teams and formal A's, hate when you put sites in there because they say a lot of them don't even pertain to the issue that you're talking about and so what you're talking about make sure that you're putting the right site in for the right issue but another thing that i talked about is in expedited cases when an advocate can't turn in sites you know i love to put in sites as an informal and formal on those expedited issues a letter warning seven day 14 day because an arbitrator will then have sites You know, kind of under the table, you kind of put it in under the table like that, uh, so that they can take home and they'll have those in the case file. I remember JB, when we went to Kingsport, you know, they tried to throw those sites out of my contentions and the arbitrator said, no, those are the contentions. They're just going to stay in there. So there are times when they're, they're very valuable, but also I know that a lot of B team members say, you know, please don't put sites in your, your stuff. Because sometimes you may not be uh, helping yourself. You may be hurting yourself. So we talk about that a lot. We talk about that a lot on this episode.
1: And it can, you know, it can be positive, yes. Um, But, you know, I go back to if it's an inexperienced steward or something, it can also clutter up a case file, which, you know, (laughs) advocates and Step B team members are uh, not big fans of that normally. So, yeah, I think just using it it, appropriately is – you know, is, is the way to go. And, and it, it takes some experience and, you know, that's why people listen to stuff like this is to learn how to, how to do this kind of things, which is a great thing.
0: If national isn't able to get rid of CCA position and move to a fully career workforce, will y'all look at closing the letter carrier paragraph loophole for off assignment mandating?
1: Yeah, we talked about, I think I talked about that earlier, that that has been a topic and, uh, you know the last couple of rounds of bargaining, and I'm sure we'll we'll dig into it again. Um, you know, because and this is my personal view, and I think uh, at least some people share this view is you know mandatory overtime is mandatory overtime, and it, it and I understand why the labor care paragraph exists and what we have in Article Eight, Section Five that exists to apply, apply to different circumstances, but it does seem that we could simplify it. You know, so. You had one rule for all, and, and you utilized auxiliary assistance because, you know, as we all have talked about at some point in time, the whole purpose of, of a lot of Article 8, and particularly Article 8, Section 5, is to prohibit those do those full-time regulars that do not want to work overtime from working overtime. And I think it could help us in that regard.
0: All right, where can the carriers go to find legal help during their EEOC process? We're having problems finding attorneys to finish the process, and oftentimes most of them don't like to go against the post office.
1: Yeah, um, that's kind of a hard question, to be honest, to answer just very generally. What I will say is, you know, that's your choice as, as a carrier, but if you would like us to, you know, possibly assist or advise on you know who maybe we could find one in your area you know we'll be happy to do that so if you have a question about that i would tell you probably the best thing to do would just be calling NLC headquarters you could ask for me um and you know if, if i'm not available which is the case a lot of times because of travel or whatever else may be going on uh, we can get the right you know i can ask you know our attorneys and and different people that to maybe make a recommendation. We'd be happy to do that if, if, if you find yourself in that uh, in that circumstance.
0: All right, this one you've covered majority of it. I don't know if you want to touch on this first part, but it says, As a CCA, I would like to hear the history of the Tier 2 wage table and creation of the CCA position, including management's contentions that convinced the arbitration. And the real question for Mr. Renfro is what are the chances tier two in the CCA position can be renegotiated to better yet eliminated? You've already touched on that, but if you yeah. want to talk about the history of it.
1: Yeah. So we should, I guess I should cover that. Cause you know, there's a I realize there's, look, there's a hundred and over a hundred thousand people, you know, that are, that are letter carriers and members in ALC that uh, have started since um, 2013, which was, which was when, in January of 2013, is when the DOS Award was issued. But to understand, you know, what took place there and and the result, I think you have to understand the circumstances. And, you know, I've talked about that bargaining environment. Well, here were the things at that time that affected the bargaining environment. So, you know, this country had had its worst recession since the Great Depression in 2009 and leading into uh, even into 2010 and at the same time we had were reaching the peak of let's call it the electronic diversion where even prior to the recession first class mail volume so first class letters are still the most profitable piece of mail for the postal service from a revenue standpoint in terms of what it cost it now it's very affordable for someone to mail a letter But when you compare that revenue they get versus the cost to process and deliver that piece of mail, it's still the most profitable piece. Because of email, um, we had already seen the first class mail volume decline. Um, At that time, it was more so caused by people not sending as many, you know, greeting cards or birthday cards or personal correspondence, you know, so much of that. And look, everyone listening to this podcast probably the same way. You know, we do a lot of that stuff through email now. Um, then, when the recession hit, you had companies that did, you know, really relied on first class mail. Think of credit card companies that would just send tons of mail. The impact of that recession, even though the recovery started in, you know, maybe 2011, 12, 13 in 2009 into 2010 it took away a gigantic amount of first class mail volume because with the recession you had so many large mailers that just simply didn't invest money in using first class mail anymore um so you were faced with in this round of bargaining which started in so it would have been August of 2011 we had a employer a postal service who had lost a tremendous amount of revenue. The, which then made the pre-funding payments that started in 2006, with five or $6 billion a year that thankfully just this year we finally got repealed legislatively. But at that time you're making those payments, you've lost a, a gigantic amount of revenue. One of the other postal unions had in 2010 before we opened agreement, reached a agreement on a contract that included a non-career workforce. Um, it included a true two-tier wage scale where employees hired after a certain date would never reach top-step pay. Um, they wouldn't go to, to step O. Their pay would stop at, I forget what step it was, it K, L, something like that. Um, maybe H, I'm not real sure, to be honest. Uh, the details, I don't re- recall. So you're going into bargaining, and then those are the the environment that you had at that point in time. You had an employer that was experiencing billions of dollars in losses every year, mail volume that even though, you know, by 2011, the the recession had started to trend up and the recovery had started, that mail volume that the postal service lost did not come back. The first class mail did not. E-commerce had not yet boomed to the extent it would in the next few years. Where you know now in large part parcel parcel revenue was replaced that lost revenue you had this precedent from another union that had created a non-career workforce to serve as their primary um leave replacement and and that kind of thing that had traditionally been ptf's um you know career employees you had um also with that two tier wage scale so a really difficult bargaining environment and the parties reached impasse, um, went through interest arbitration, um, with Arbitrator Doss being the neutral arbitrator. And it just simply was a matter of fact that there was no way to avoid NALC having a non-career workforce like the CCAs. And our main priority in that round of bargaining was not having a true two-tier workforce to ensure that, you know, everybody got to step O. We were able to achieve that. We also, um, won't thought that, that because our job is harder, that this new classification of CCAs should be paid more than what this, the non-career classification and the other craft was being paid. So we were able to achieve that. It was very important that we had a mechanism for that non-career workforce that we had never had before for them to convert into career positions. And we were able to achieve that. So, um, When you compare that bargaining environment to the bargaining environment that we had the next two rounds where it improved and we were able to make significant improvements, uh, it's even more improved now. And, you know, it's just negotiations are not about – if someone says that negotiations are about saying, well, I'm going to achieve this, exactly this, and I walk into a room and I tell the other side, this is what i got to have, or, and if you don't give it to me, well, they then they say no. Well, now what? Um, it's not about who sits in a room and is necessarily the best speaker or the best negotiator. It's about evaluating those factors that affect that environment, realizing what you can achieve, and finding the right strategy to achieve it through bargaining. And that's kind of what we're currently doing. And, frankly, that's what was done in 2011, 12, you know, when we got the Interest Arbitration Award in 2013. Um, It's just about achieving the best possible outcome you can under the circumstances that you have. And, you know, a lot of work goes on um, even between contracts uh, because we have, to some degree, the ability to, you know, have a positive influence on that environment, whether it's legislative stuff like, you know, what we just did with the Postal Reform Act, whether it's, you know, working with the White House or the leadership in the Senate, you know, whoever that may be at the time that's responsible for the confirmation process of getting people that uh, will be, you know, allies of ours on stuff like the Board of Governors, because they have to approve contracts that we negotiate. So uh, there's some things that, that we have some control over, and we work really hard to you know, work in those areas to best represent our members and create that environment. And then there's other things like the economy that uh, we don't have so much control over. And, um, you know, it was a pretty stark contrast when you look at where we were coming off that recession to where we are now, where, you know, the, the pieces of the economy that really influence us are what's going on with wages and how much are people being paid and that kind of thing and those things at least for now look to be uh look to be pretty positive for us
0: all right now, i know everybody wants their questions asked to hear them asked but i've got a lot that deal with ccas with consolidation with Louis DeJoy, friend or foe with uh the time credit and all that stuff i'm not going to keep asking those questions because there's a there's two pages that i've just cut out we're doing that, well, and so... So,
1: Court, I tell you what, if anybody out there has sent a, a question, one of those, and they listen to this, and they don't think I answered their question, even though, like you and I haven't you haven't read their question or whatever, tell them to let you know, and I'll get back on in the future and answer
0: That's a date. <laughs> right.
1: That's a deal. That's
0: a deal. We'll, all right. Good. All right. What's the status on the new vehicles, such as when and what percentage will be electric?
1: Yeah. So uh, um, we are things are moving well. Uh, production is going to start here very soon in 2023. The, um, the 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 question about the electric piece has changed a little bit. There was a bill passed in Congress called the Inflation Reduction Act, and, you know, I'm sure everybody listening could have all sorts of opinions about different parts of that bill, Um, and we would, I'm sure that'd be a fun discussion, but for the purposes of this, let's avoid that. I bring it up because that bill appropriated $3 billion to the Postal Service for electric vehicles. About half of that is for manufacturing of the electric vehicles, and about half is for putting in the infrastructure, the chargers, and and that kind of thing. So after that was done, um, the PMG announced that they were making an initial purchase from Oshkosh, who is the manufacturer that won the contract to to build these vehicles, uh, of 50,000 vehicles, uh, of next-generation vehicles. That's the one, if you were at the convention, I'm sure you saw it. Uh, It's something we've been involved in for years, the design. We've had a lot of I think we've had like 40 different letter carriers come participate in different ways and evaluating the, the vehicle. So um, that's the initial purchase. 50% of those 50,000 will be electric. And the production is going to start early in 2023. We should have some vehicles sometime next year start to be deployed. They also are buying 30, roughly 34,000 off the shelf, Vehicles that will probably be left-hand drive, but they'll replace some of the older minivans and, and things like that that are out there. Forty percent of that thirty-four thousand of the off-the-shelf they're going to buy will be electric. So right now they're they're going to buy all. I mean, there'll be additional orders for the new generation, you know, delivery vehicles as we go forward. But of the eighty-four thousand or so that they have committed, um, that they're going to I guess they've entered into agreements to purchase about half of those will will be electric. So um, we should start to see them next year, and then uh, you know manufacturing will continue. and It'll take a few years to get them all out there, but I, I, we feel pretty good about the vehicle itself, and you know that it's going to really suit our needs a lot better than uh, the long life vehicles that are well past the end of their long lives.
0: All right, what is National doing to address management's deliberate understaffing of clerks, which they are using as an excuse to move carrier start times back because 80% of the mail hasn't been distributed?
1: Yeah, so I don't know if they're referring to understaffing of clerks in terms of in the, like the function four in the delivery unit or, or in the, in the plants. Um, we have had some conversations with APW about that to the extent that you know, it affects us and there's no question it does in in some places. Um I mean, we don't have a ton of control there other than, you know, having these conversations with the postal service along with APW. I mean obviously it's their members, so you know, just like we're doing for staffing in our in our offices, you know, in our craft, I'm, I'm sure they're, you know, using a similar approach um to addressing those, but uh, that's one thing that I think is a really interesting part of what they have planned in the future with these sorting and delivery centers is how does that affect, and hopefully it's in a positive way. I mean, it seems like it would be with the model um, start times and, um, you know, being sure that uh, if you got a place with hundreds of routes, that's going to take a lot of distribution clerks and that kind of thing. So, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be engaged to monitor how that's built out, but, you know, if you've got that going on and, and it's something that, that's pretty evident, um, you know, feel free to get that information to your NBA office and uh, they'll they'll forward it up to us. And um, if that's something we can address, then we'll, we'll definitely make an effort to do it.
0: Can we work on getting letter carriers added to the move-over laws?
1: What's the move-over law? Do you know?
0: I guess that's for policemen, you know, you got got to move over in the – in the opposite lane when you ride up on a policeman or something
1: i suppose that's true um all right that's an interesting question i I would think that that's a bigger problem in some places than others um I, i do know and this is not a written rule but you know most places are pretty lenient in terms of us parking and you know that kind of thing um the difficulty there though is those laws are state by state. The postal service is basically unaffected by state law. Um, they don't have to, I mean, other than, you know, things that are the same in all states that are, you know, obvious like seatbelt and stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to those kind of things that they really are only governed by federal law, which makes it, you know, kind of tricky. So, uh, that's not something that we've ever discussed legislatively here, um, but I tell you what I will do, and, and this will be interesting: is to uh, I'd be interested to talk, and I will. I'll talk to the folks at the Postal Service and see what their um, take is on that. Do they do they have a sense of how that goes from state to state? Um, because I, you know, I'm sure in in high traffic areas, there are times that uh, <laughs> that'd be really nice and <laughs> help you get from. You know, get from point A to to point B.
0: All right. I'm waiting through the ones we've crossed out. Now here's one: with the postal service attempting to re-implement the red line policy, just as the T-RAP begins, why has the union opted out of the T-RAP process?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't. Well, first off, that the, the red line policy is not a national thing. Um, right now, I'm sure whoever asked that question could care less whether it's national because they're having to deal with it in their unit. I understand that completely. So, you know, something like that is pretty obviously going to violate the provisions of the M41 that govern PM office time. I mean, it's very specific about what carriers do when you get back to the office. So I don't, that's, I don't see that and the route adjustment process as being things that are related, except in that if you have that going on, then that's something you should discuss with the team. You should make them aware of that. Um, Chances are they will become aware of it just through the local contacts. But this is a grievance that uh, there's a grievance starter out there, and, Corey, I think you might have even covered this on an episode. When the Postal Service does things that, like this red line deal that prohibit carriers from doing what the M41 says we should do, You know, as long as you document that that's going on, um, that should be a pretty slam-dunk grievance. Uh, So focus on, you know, not necessarily the fact that they have, you know, whatever this program is, but the result of that is an instruction that doesn't allow you to do what the M41 says you were supposed to do when you returned to the office in the afternoon. And I would just encourage you to attack that through the grievance procedure and would think you'd have a have a pretty high chance of being successful as long as you documented that, made the the right basic arguments and contentions.
0: You may not be able to answer this, but what would it take for the NELC to go across the street and tell management, if y'all keep up with this shit, we're getting the fuck out of this T-Rap process. What would it take for that to happen? That's not a question. Um, I just made that up right now.
1: Yeah, probably just them not being – Willing to engage or or go through the process, had to be something pretty egregious like that. Um, we don't. That's typically not the way you know things work. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. <laughs> and you, I mean, you've seen you've seen agreements where you know each side has a, the ability to opt out of it. Um, it it's normally not and. and i just think of it like this if the post service came to me and said hey if you don't do this we're going to opt out of this i'd say go ahead you know like uh, i don't respond to threats like that and you know so we don't really make them now if there was you know some kind of gross non-compliance or misconduct with the agreement itself and the process or something some issue that was raised and they just refuse to address it with their people, then sure, we, we would consider it at that point, but it would be something related to, you know, their conduct or what they're doing in, in the process. then right. Also, I, I, this is, you know, it normally, when there's something going on out in the field that, you know, we become aware of it's a, you know, clear violation. Let's say this, like that red line thing is going on in, whatever some district some dm put out something to do this across the district we can normally get that fixed you know without having to go down that road just because it's a contract violation and when it's done on something of a large scale you know they run the risk and understand that there's a possibility that that could turn into a national grievance which would be pretty embarrassing for them to have something that's such a clear-cut violation of uh, of the collective bargaining agreement or handbook or manual or whatever it is. So normally, um, with the folks over there, when something like that's going on, we're able to get that stuff resolved just by pointing it out to them and why it's wrong and why it shouldn't be happening and, and so on. So usually doesn't get to a point where that's what's necessary, um, to, to get something like that fixed. Now, that said, you know, I obviously don't become aware of everything that's going on. And that's a reason we have NBAs and, Great folks at the branch level and stewards and the grievance process and, and all of that kind of thing.
0: Man, you're in the home stretch, baby. You got just a few. Right. More, a few more.
1: We don't. We've only been on for about half an hour, haven't
0: we? Well, it's three hours. <laughs> <laughs> will this be, will this be the longest episode ever. I think so. Yeah, it's three. It's three hours, <laughs> right. and I still got two hours of talking when you get off of here. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right. Is there a way to see the total amounts of money paid out yearly from grievances? Will can national use that in their discussions for the upcoming contract?
1: Um, So, and we talked about this a little earlier. There is a way. Yes. um, We could request that. I mean, we, we do request stuff for information for collective bargaining. Um, And is there a way we could use that? Yes, there is a, a way we could use it. Um, But I I think even though local managers or and we all know this, are not held accountable the vast majority of the time for stuff like that, um, the the folks at the Postal Service at the headquarters level, they are aware of that stuff. They know, you know, what kind of money is being spent on grievances. And um, it's one of those things that doesn't always take us throwing it in their face (laughs) for it to be effective and I'm not saying we don't we haven't done that because we have at times depending on who you're dealing with. but um, it's a it's a fact that is known and it's a, a factor for sure in what we'll talk about, especially as it relates to you know some of the the need for headquarters driven task forces and committees and stuff like that to address you know things like like non-compliance and, and that kind of thing it can, Definitely serve as uh, motivation for them because I don't. I can promise you that the uh, leadership at the Postal Service, while this may not be reflected in the, what you see from managers locally, um, they would be interested in reducing grievances and reducing the amount of money that they're they're spending. It's just a matter of through negotiations, finding a something that we can agree on that you know might actually might actually make that happen. You know on a day-to-day basis on the workroom floor. That's, that's where the difficulty comes in. So now uh, there will be a significant amount of time in our collective bargaining discussion spent on that topic. I can assure you of that.
0: All right. How have we dropped the ball so bad on city rural territory? We have entire cities with zero city carriers. Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know that I'd say drop the ball. There's a lot of people that have done a lot of hard work on this issue for a long time now. And we've resolved a lot of, a, a lot of cases. That said, as I've said earlier, we still have a lot of pending you know, disputes. And for the reasons I also mentioned earlier, it's, um, it's a difficult thing where it takes three to agree. Um, the rules, so to speak, are kind of vague. The Postal Operations Manual has um, some – it lays out some stuff, uh, like the Postal Services considerations, whether they assign it to city, they assign it to rural. And uh, it's just an issue where we have a committee, we have conversations, we are able to resolve cases from you know time to time. Um, but short of, of us taking every one of these disputes – and having a tripartite arbitration hearing, which is a possibility to, to have in the future, um, that is ultimately what resolves these—either agreement or going in that direction. So uh, we keep working on them. I mean, we, as I said, we've got we know everything that we have. A lot of people that have done a lot of work on them. We talk to the rural carriers about it, uh, you know, pretty consistently. We get you know talk with folks at the post office with them together. Um, I do have some ideas that we could, uh, you know, potentially put in place, maybe uh, have like a, a local implementation period where, you know, we would give some guidance and have representatives from uh, the NALC branch and from the rural cares and from the, you know, the postmaster or whoever in that particular installation to sit down and talk about trying to draw some boundaries that are fair to both sides. And look, if we did that and, even if a small percentage of people actually reached an agreement there, um, that would still resolve the city rural issues in, in that place, you know, forever. So, um, but even that's tricky because, again, you got to have three people, you know, agree to something locally. So, it's a difficult problem. I mean, all the, the, the cases that were out there that were, you know, a little easier, let's say, to resolve have been resolved. So, the ones that we have are ones that have very tough issues that, you know, both sides have. Um, you know pretty strong feelings about and are nowhere near one another in terms of our positions and um, but we'll continue to engage on it and you know hopefully uh, at some point in the future one for by one way or another um, get some some resolve to those things in a way that you know brings some deliveries back into uh, back into our craft where we where we think they should have been ours um, initially and. and we don't lose deliveries because there's just as many of those cases out there where the rural carriers have grieved stuff stuff that we've gotten that in their view they should have gotten so uh, we'll keep engaging with them and you know hopefully uh we'll make some progress pretty soon either through kind of that concept i talked about or or something else
0: all right as far as work hour limits in articles 85f 85g and elm 432.32 is there any plans to attempt to add language to these provisions that state something like a carrier cannot be disciplined for refusing to work over these work hour limits
1: i sure hope so um that i'm not sure if in negotiations that would be something that uh just just to be honest about it would probably be difficult to achieve with a voluntary agreement. I mentioned earlier briefly that CAU has been our, our contract administration unit even over the last few weeks. We've really dug into um you know, how to approach this, you know, out in the field and, and there'll be some information that comes out through your NBA's about how to put together those files and, and we've had some success in places where we've had you know just continuous violations and achieved exactly that through arbitration uh, we just recently had an award um, from kansas a few weeks ago that, that did exactly that same thing it basically told the you know said carriers can when they've reached those limits that they can leave you know with with impunity and there's no you know that they can't be disciplined or anything like that but it has become a bigger problem with the staffing issues that are out there and um, we are exploring how to uh, how to combat that, whether through the grievance procedure. We definitely can do it, you know, locally. Um, but also, you know, looking at uh, potential, you know, is there anything we could do on a, on a national scale? And you just have this conflict between arbitrator Mittenthal. A long, long time ago, said those work hour limits are absolute. That was the word he used. Um, but then you also have the the remedies in the JCAM that uh, came from arbitrator Snow and by you know, specifying a remedy for a violation, if you're the Postal Service, you're going to take the position. Well, if, if they told us here's what the remedy is, then, you know, it's inherent that it can happen. So you've got that conflict, and that's the issue that we're dealing with. And, you know, thankfully, you know, for NOC we're so lucky. We still, um, our attorneys, we still have a couple of them that were involved in those hearings back in the 80s. So... <laughs> Um, that's been beneficial, just the historical perspective and and that kind of thing. So um, we're going to keep dealing with that. But it's an issue that, that we have taken on. Um, it's grown, you know, too much. It happens too often. And it's not it was never intended to be used um, by the Postal Service as much as it is now, where. It's not something where you can just violate it and pay the fifty percent, and that's that. Um, so, and that'll be that'll be covered in what you'll see coming to the branches from the NBAs here in the pretty near future about how to frame those continuous issues, and you know, framing an Article Fifteen issue with non-compliance if you got previous grievances, and how to get to um, eventually or potentially get to that remedy of carriers being able to be protected from discipline and going home when they reach those maximums
0: all right got three more in article Mm -hmm. eight in article eight five there's a provision regarding 10-hour odls in the memorandum it states if the 10-hour preference is violated the remedy shall be a correction to the opportunities available within the list isn't this the same thing as a normal odl what is the purpose of this list if management doesn't really need to honor it Uh, having it in the jcam leads to unnecessary and conflicts.
1: Yeah, so um, I can see how it can be read that way, but I think it's actually sim- more simple than uh, what most people may know. So this comes from, there are sev- three, or several, I think three, um, MOUs that are in our contract regarding Article 8, and they're also printed at the end of Article 8 in the j um, The MOU from 1984 I believe um, is the one that, that established the let's call it the 10 hour preference on the ODL. So there's an ODL um, ODL people can be worked up to 12 and 60. That's very, very clear. in in article eight, five G what this preference, let's call it is just the the language. And this is explained in the J cam. The language is just about that. They normally won't be, if if you indicate with an asterisk that you were a 10-hour person on the ODL, that's your preference, you would not be worked beyond 10 in a day or 56 in a week as long as there were carries on the ODL that were 12-hour preference people are available. That is all it means. All it means is that if you indicate that preference and somebody else does not indicate it or they're a 12-hour person and there's work past 10 hours for you and they could do it instead, then they get the work. That's all it means. It's just simply a preference. Now, as far as correcting of the opportunities, that's just about equitability. So when it comes to all the other obligations management has to use the ODL, like in 85G, it's not relevant whether someone is 10 or 12 hours. They still have to maximize those people to 12 and 60. It's just that if you've got work and you've got a 10 hour and a 12 hour preference that are available and that work goes beyond 10 hours, you would give it to the 12 hour person. It's just simply a preference.
0: All right. Now this one's, uh, I don't know if we still do do this. You may know it says, uh, Hello, I'm a carrier in the certain region, former steward. Our office has been sharing cases since I believe September of 2017. I just listened to your podcast on ergonomics and was wondering, thinking it might be a good way to grieve the shared casing. So far, we have been told we cannot do anything to get rid of it. We have half our routes starting at 7.30 a.m., obviously with the understanding they will case and leave within an hour, so that those of us who began our tour at 8.30 can begin to case our routes. The second group of carrier's mail is staged on the bottom shelf of an APC, so lots of bending over to retrieve tubs of spurs and bundles of retail me nights, et cetera, out of the APC. We had coffins for mail, but they were moved with little to no explanation. Space issue is what they say. We have 11 city routes and 14 rural in our office. No shared cases for the rules. They take up most of the office. would love some ideas to suggest to our union on how to eliminate this mess. Lots of missports, overtime inequity, sharing equipment during COVID didn't seem to faze them.
1: Yeah, so I think you're on the right track. So for those that that may not um, be familiar with this, and thankfully not many of you are because it's not in a lot of places, but it is in some places. Back in, uh, I think that question that the listener said, 2017, but back in, I think this started like in 2014, if I remember right, uh, or 15 maybe. They implemented this two-in-one casing thing unilaterally. In, in in a few places. Not a ton, but a few places around the country. And the reason for it, they say, was to create space in the in the office. The problem is, like they do with so many other things, they, they didn't put any thought into it. They just said, all right, Route one and two you go together, route three and four go together, so on and so forth. Here there are two very important points to take away. Number one, there is nothing contractually that prohibits, or in a handbook or manual, that prohibits the Postal Service from doing this. Just the concept of I'm going to have a case that, you know, two different routes are going to use. That said, what you should focus on, and I think it sounds like that, that this person is on the right track, is you should identify and grieve any violation that results from it. So there are some obvious things that you just take a look at, the M39, the M41, mostly is where you're going to find those things. You know, we mentioned the ergonomic, the safety piece. That could, if there's something that it causes, um, then that that could be addressed. So uh, but there are just stuff related to normal office duties that change um, that, that you were supposed to do based on what the M41 says. So, and, and that's a little bit different in each of these places, so I would just advise you to, um, you know, it's not grieving the fact that you does you know, you don't frame the issue as does the postal service's implementation of the two in one casing violate the, the collective bargaining agreement. It's gotta be more did the postal service violate or did management violate, you know, section whatever of the M thirty nine or the M forty one when they instructed carriers or, or, or the, the these two in one casing caused carriers to have to do this. So um, focus on the violations that result from the implementation of it. If you do that, number one, um, we'll get back to a point to where if we get those corrected and they're doing the two-in-one and they're complying with the handbooks and manuals and the collective bargaining agreement, okay. Um, we also have had in some places where it became pretty evident that because of the way they did things there, you just couldn't do this and comply with that. And In some places, you know, it eventually went away for that reason if they couldn't comply with the handbooks and manuals so um and and again it's different in every place so i would just say you know look at what's going on look at the stuff that um you know has resulted and um you know if you're the steward and i think they said maybe said a reformer steward i don't remember but you know talk to your steward about that you can you know write statements uh, uh, the things that violate those handbooks and manuals and we should get grievances filed on those for sure
0: all right, just curious, what is your five-year business plan to lead our union into the future? <clears throat>
1: Five years. So um, I'm not sure if they're talking about in terms of the Postal Service or the NALC, so I'll just answer both quickly. <laughs> um, right. So for the Postal Service, it's uh, thankfully we passed postal reform. That was a big deal. We also have something that uh, um, the – uh, we need the administration to do the White House. Uh, I, I won't get into the boring details of it, but in a nutshell, prior to 1970, the post office was a post office department, a department of the government. After 1970, it was the Postal Service like we know today. And for postal employees that worked prior to 1970 and then after 1970 and retired, um, the Office of Personnel Management has miscalculated um They they miscalculated that obligation for those folks' retirement too much to the Postal Service and not enough to the government. Uh, So that is something that would um, we're working on getting that done. The timing is important, um, and we're working with the administration. That will be a big deal uh, also financially. So if we can get that done, we're in a pretty good place with the financial health of the Postal Service going forward. After that, um, as far as the, the USPS goes, Uh, It's just ensuring as, as they go through this network modernization, all the things we talked about earlier that, you know, it goes in the right direction. It doesn't compromise service. It doesn't negatively affect, you know, carriers. It's something that, um, you know, does what needs to be done and allows us to, you know, as we begin to implement these new delivery vehicles and there's a pretty serious modernization that's, that has to happen. Um, and and making sure that's done the right way and and just recognizing that, you know, package volume is not going to go down. It's going to go up and being sure that we're positioned um, that we can handle that stuff. As far as NALC, um, we are very blessed by so many of the women and men that have come, you know, well before me or, um, you know, even even President Orlando, he's done a, a great job in this regard that, you know, our union is on very sound financial footing, and, and that allows us in a lot of ways to continue to grow and invest in what we do to represent our members in a lot of different areas. Obviously, the grievance arbitration procedure we've talked about a lot here. we talked about the regional grievance assistance and all the work they do. Um, we also have invested significantly in what we do for – representing injured employees that are covered by the Federal Employees Compensation Act, Workers' Cop. We've got several full-time folks out there. We call them regional workers' compensation assistants that, that help not just directly help people with claims, but they help with training and branches, and, you know, we've been able to do that on the legislative front. You know, passing post-reform was a, a huge deal, and it's due to, you know, our kind of capacity and the resources we have. You know, both politically and also out in the field to communicate and influence members of Congress. So, you know, those areas are, are the main things that we do um, in terms of representation. And thankfully, we're in a position that we can continue to grow and, and invest in that, and, and things like training and um, just try to get, always strive to be the best we can possibly be in terms of representation, whatever forum that's in. Um. The other is, is organizing, and, you know, we're so good at organizing. We, over 93% of our members are, are of our of letter carriers are members of the NALC. But, you know, that past success doesn't guarantee anything in the future. So just ensuring that, you know, that not just that we're signing up people to be members of the union. I mean, ultimately, that's that's what you're looking to achieve. But we do everything we can when we hire a new letter carrier to educate them about the union not just so they'll join, but so that the union can be as effective for them as as it possibly can. Um, NALC and in, internally, um, we our employees at headquarters are wonderful. You know, we've got a great group of people that are some. Many of them are not letter carriers, but you know they care about our union. They care about our people. The same's true in our mutual benefit association, our life insurance, and and definitely also out at the the NALC health benefit plan. And, um, Oh, if you listen to, uh, I won't get into the details, but you know, the podcast that you asked me about initially, our letter cares first podcast, we've kind of dug into some of those issues when we've had Stephanie Stewart, who's our director of health benefits and Jimmy H at MBA, and, and with Paul Barner, um, talking a lot about, you know, what we do at headquarters and that kind of thing. So, you know, real proud of those folks and excited about, uh, about what we can do here over over the next few years
0: all right last one this is just some advice all right right. guy just sent this to me i'm located in this part of my state we have seven full city routes and then one AUX. i was a runner on my overburden route for around two years i had never been given or read the m41 as, as I have educated myself through the handbooks and your podcast, thank you for it by the way, I immediately realized the way I was running my route was unsafe. I have quit doing the things that saved so much time and put me in jeopardy. Management is pissed. Although they have never given me a 39.99, they deny every 39.96 I put in based on past demonstrated performance. Now I know this is BS, but the current lapdog 204B is beginning to threaten that I'm starting a war. Our local union is in shambles. Two of the senior guys, the treasurer and trustee, got out due to political reasons, and our president just retired. Great guy, horribly uninformed. Our steward wants to be in management. So that says it all. We have one other carrier in the office who wants to hold management's feet to the fire. I don't know exactly what I'm asking here. Just keep your brothers and sisters in this part of their state in your thoughts and prayers. The battle is here, and we can't get our local branch on its feet to fight. What would you tell that individual?
1: Well, first, I don't know where they're from. Um, The first thing I would tell them is, uh, you know, congratulations on educating yourself and and for one main reason. is the most important thing that everybody – that's out there carrying mail every day needs to do is keep yourself safe. And I think that's an excellent thing. Here's what I would tell you to do is it, whether it's you or it's that other individual in your office that you talked about, that's willing to step up is, you know, give your NBA office a call, tell them basically what you said in that, uh, in that question or, or, you know, asking for advice. And um, I am sure that uh, they will, you know, have someone there help you out and, and, you know, let you guys help you figure out what you want to do in terms of representation. And, um, you know, chances are they probably know your president and, uh, and can help with, uh, you know, getting somebody in a position to to represent there. And if whatever reason you're, uh, you're not comfortable doing that, then uh, like I've said before, feel free to call headquarters and, we will uh, kind of facilitate that. So um, stories like that are good, you know, knowing you got some challenges in front of you, but the fact that uh, you've got at least one person and, you know, that you've taken the time yourself to get educated and to learn about things, you know, you never know. You might be the individual that can do that too. And we've got folks out there that'll uh, that will help you out, I promise you.
0: Brian, you have just answered questions for three and a half hours, my brother. Man. What you about know,
1: that? I was thinking <laughs> this. So normally when I I'd go to these, you know, events, and I'm so fortunate to go to, uh, you know, regional rap sessions or state conventions or trainings, and, um, normally I – between all the stuff that i share and answering questions it usually takes about three hours and we have exceeded that on a podcast <laughs> That's
0: impressive. well as a it's city impressive. letter carrier as a city letter carrier i want to say thank you i can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to your people uh I'm, some of these questions weren't comfortable you know but you answered every single one um you know, as far as your ticket, I know that I said I don't do politics on this podcast, but I think that I would err if I didn't say that if I'm walking through a, a shady part of town, Brian, and and I'm surrounding myself with poodles or Datsuns, you know, I would be unwise. I would surround myself with... German Shepherds or Pit Bulls or doberman Pinchers, and that's what you've done with your ticket. Uh, I look at your ticket and, and you've got some fucking monsters on your ticket. Some that I've worked side by side with, you know, Manny Peralta, Dan Toth. You know, those guys are beasts. Uh, you know, you've got, uh, James Henry, mm-hmm. who's a legend, you know, and I'm not gonna go through your whole ticket. Like I said, I don't do politics, but, you know, if you look at those three guys, they've been in 655 arbitrations together. 655 mm-hmm. arbitrations between those three, and have won 415, which is astronomical. Um, you know, I, I would be remiss not to say that, you know, you've got my full support, you've got my vote. Uh, because this election, more than any other election, is the most critical, because we do have a, a change in leadership. Uh, and so I, I would just be remiss if I didn't say that. Look, on this podcast, I'm gonna throw rocks if I'm not happy with something, and you know me, Brian. I mean, you know me well. I do. <laughs> so yes, I do. <laughs> if I'm not happy with something, I'm gonna fucking talk about it, and I'm gonna throw rocks at anybody. You know, I'm that dog that got hit in the middle of the street. Anybody that comes up to me, I'm gonna bite the some of bitch. And so that's just Ooh. how I am. I'm gonna call shit out as I see it, and and I always will. But uh, I want you to know. You know, you just took three and a half hours to talk to your people and answer their questions. Um, You put together a hell of a fucking ticket, man. And so, uh, you know, you've got my vote, Brian. And, And I always talk about this. To be an effective leader in the union, you have to have a passionate love affair for the city letter carrier. That's the only thing yep. that matters to me, Brian, is that, is that you have a passionate love affair for the city letter care. And I know that you do. I've talked to uh-huh. you enough to know that. Um, we'll settle all this other shit out, you know, all these things with, with lack of, of union representation. You know, we'll deal with that. We'll educate people. All these contractual issues, man, we're going to keep educating people. But, um, it's just important that that everybody understands how important this election is due to the change in leadership you're talking about a devastating decision if it goes the wrong way so brian here in front of god and everybody you got my vote man i love your ticket uh it's a powerhouse of a fucking ticket man so uh i appreciate you talking so long three and a half hours man that's that's <laughs> unbelievable i just want you to know i appreciate you man i really do
1: yeah, well, look, Corey, I, I I appreciate the kind words, and I couldn't agree with you more. I know all those other twenty seven people, I know them very well. I've worked with most of them for for years, and you know, in some capacity. And uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I, I do hope that you know the folks that, that you know. Number one, I hope people vote in the election because that's that's you should take advantage of your right as a member of our union to participate in uh, in that process. But um, yeah, I. I I appreciate everything you said and, and I couldn't agree with you more. We've got a, got a great group that I think is, is very capable. And I appreciate you having me on, man. I didn't, uh, you know, you told me it may take a while, but, uh, <laughs> uh it's, it's, it's been fun and, and I hope everybody, I thank the folks that submitted the questions and, you know, look, I, there, there are some questions that, um, you know, some may view as, as difficult or, um, you know, hard balls or or whatever you want to call it, but man, you know, look, that's when you do, you know, what I do and, and just be so, being so blessed to, you know, have the opportunity to have been elected, you know, and, and to serve in, in these jobs. And, And you're absolutely right that I do it for the letter cares. I mean, look, I, my dad was a letter care before I was born and, you know, I still do it to be sure that, you know, the extent I can that everybody has the same opportunity to have a career and a retirement like he had and you know that's what we're going to continue to do but when you're blessed to you know serve in this position you you just kind of you don't even view questions as easy or hard or whatever you just understand that that a member of this union is asking a question and my responsibility as a leader and besides just my responsibility what I want to do is be sure that that member gets an answer to their question whatever it may be um And in that sense, you know, you don't really—I don't really get comfortable or uncomfortable. It's just—it's a—it's a city letter carrier that has a question, and when they have a question, you know, I think it's—it's it's my duty to give them an answer. So I appreciate everybody submitting the questions. There were some really good ones, some very thoughtful ones, and it was definitely my pleasure to uh, be able to answer them all. So, McCord, thanks again for having me, man. Bye, uh, you, I, I, I enjoyed it, and, and I know you and I will talk soon.
0: You got a standing invitation, my man. Take care of yourself, Brian. I appreciate you, brother.
1: All right, brother. Take care.
0: All right, man. We'll see you. Okay. Bye. All right. There you have it. Three and a half hours of questions and answers with Mr. Brian Renfro, Executive Vice President. Uh, I told you I don't do politics, and I don't. This will be the only time you hear me actually say I'm vote for somebody but this this election is critical to the NLC uh it's it's devastatingly critical that we have the right party the right people the right ticket in there and um that's why I back it fully I've I've worked side by side with numerous people on this ticket and I know who they are what they're about I know their fabric uh so I want to say this, and and it's something that has has weighed heavy on me in the last few days, because I don't talk about uh, different people. You have the right to vote for who you want to vote for. You vote for who you want to vote for, uh, and you're going to vote for whatever reason, and that's okay. Um, But something was put up, and somebody told me about it the other day, and I went and looked at it and and I'm not the person that I used to be thank god um, but when my brother and I were in school you know we fought each other some of the worst fights I ever fought were with my brother we I mean knockdown drag out fights some of the worst fights we ever got into and you know I remember my mother would come home and she'd be like what in the world happened to y'all's faces and we just like oh, always just wrestling you know, stuff like that, cause she'd kill us, but, um, but the worst fight I ever got into was when somebody would fuck with my brother or when somebody would fuck with me. That's the worst fights I ever got into because you do not mess with my family. And that's just, that's just how I was raised. That was my mother raising me. Now my dad and his brother were legendary in the nations where they grew up here. Uh, as far as fighting and I wasn't that way, but if you messed with my brother or you messed with my family, I would become a treacherous son of a bitch, man. I was truly treacherous. Um, and so something happened the other day that I saw. Somebody told me about it and I had a picture up of me and, and two national officers that when I was in Chicago went to a, a cookout. And uh, so they were there, two great friends of mine. One, one I love like a brother. The other, I've just come to know here lately. He's a great guy. So I take a picture with them, and I put it up on the Formate Arbitration Facebook page. And and Mister Noble continues to comment on this picture. So I just delete it. I don't get involved with that. I just delete the comment uh, because it's you know it's derogatory. I'm not going to have that man. I don't even know this guy. I don't even know you. You know, I've never talked to you, but then you took this picture of my friends and me and put it on your page, my friend, and you started talking negatively about those individuals in that picture that you took off my page. See, you're wanting that treacherous son of a bitch to come back out when you do that because you don't know me, sir. You don't have a clue who I am. But you took something that was mine and put it on your page and talked negatively about family members of mine because that's what they are. Those are brothers and sisters of mine. Two brothers that are with me in this picture you you talk negatively about. For what reason did you do that? You're running for president of this union. And that's how you act? That's what you want to portray to your members is, look, this is how I'm going to talk about people, about my brothers. You know, in The Godfather, he says, you know, just just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. And that's how I feel because I've, I'm not that treacherous motherfucker that, that I used to be. And that's what you wanted to come out, sir, when you did that is you wanted that individual to come out when you took something that was mine and put it on your page to talk negatively about two brothers of mine. You're not going to get that. You're not going to get that treacherous motherfucker I used to be, okay? You're going to get pity. And you're going to get forgiveness. Look, man, whatever is going on with you is eating you up like a cancer. It just is. It's eating you up like a cancer. You've got to let go of that. You've got to let go of that, man. I saw your, you at national. It's eating you up like a cancer, this hatred you have. Sir, I'm going to offer you forgiveness for what you did. I'm not going to be the treacherous one and talk to you like I would have. Sir, you've got to get rid of this hatred, man. It is eating you alive. You know, you run. That's your right. Do what you want to do, man. But you put up a picture of two of my friends with me in it and made derogatory remarks about two brothers of mine. I offer you forgiveness, my friend. I offer you pity. You're not going to get the treacherous one. <laughs> You're not going to get him. I don't even know you, man. I have no idea who you are. Be better than that. Okay? Be better than that. All right? Win or lose, be better than that. You know, you've offered a lot of things, um, a lot of promises, man. Uh, I get that. I get the politics of it, you know. I can't buy gas with promises. I can't eat promises. You know, I can't buy groceries with promises. I can't pay my light bill with promises. That's all you've offered. You've offered no resolution. You've offered nothing. And that's all I'm going to say. Uh But man, when you did that, baby... You know, you, you almost got the wrong one. Um, because I love those guys dearly that you did that to. I love them dearly. And to see them flown it out there for the world to see, and you to comment like you did on it, baby, let me tell you. <laughs> you were calling the treacherous one back. He's not coming, my friend. He's not coming. Forgiveness and pity came. Okay? I forgive you, Mr. Noble, for what you did. And I have pity for you. you got to get rid of your hatred, man. You've got to get rid of that bitterness and hatred. Okay? It's eating your ass up like a cancer, son. All right? Hey, I, I, you're my brother, so I love you. Okay? Because you're, you're a union brother. And I love you for that. But... But don't, don't fuck around with my people. Okay. Um, I'm gonna forgive you this time. All right. So, hey, y'all vote. Vote how you want. Vote with uh, what you've learned. Hopefully, you've done the the research. Vote for the best one possible. It's the most critical election we'll have in the NELC because we got new leadership coming. Okay. So, y'all take the time. Educate yourselves. I appreciate Brian for coming on here, okay, and and talking to y'all for three and a half hours. He didn't have to do that. He wanted to. He asked to. Um, so uh, three and a half hours of him answering questions, you know, I really appreciate that. Next week, JB's coming on. He's going to talk about management doing carrier work. That's a big topic right now for us, okay. Uh, he's going to do a great job on that. And then the next week, I'm going to do an episode on residual mail in the DPS. It's an odd little grievance, but uh, it's one that we need to be filing because it's going to help us as far as our office time. All right. So hopefully y'all enjoyed that today. Long episode. But y'all put in the questions. Um, Again, get on uh, Discord. Uh, Mr. Renfro got on there the other night, just surprised everybody, answered questions for about two hours there, about an hour and a half. Uh, So he's on there now. Get on the Discord channel. All these links are on from aidarbitration.com. Get on there. And um, you got the Facebook page. Miss Lindsay's doing an incredible job with that. Twitter, uh, she's doing a great job with that. Um, You've got uh, Reddit coming in in a couple of weeks. I'll let you know when that comes in. A gentleman's going to handle that. Uh, Again, thank you to Cole for helping me with this. I'm praying that all this recorded because <laughs> i'll be a, a, a sad little a, a sad little individual if it didn't <laughs> so hey i love each and every one of you i do i really do with all my heart i do Um and so uh, we're doing great things great things so hopefully i enjoyed that we'll do it again sometime okay questions and answers with mr renfro the executive vice president, soon to be president. So y'all take care of yourselves. Have a fantastic week, and I'll talk to you next Sunday. All right?